Welcome to American Top 40. I'm Casey Kasem, and I'm counting down the hits on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This next artist on our countdown had an absolute knack to do whatever it took in order to avoid hitting it big. In 1999, he was the only young software developer in California, dumb enough to not work for a startup going public, and instead accepted a pedestrian salary to write code all day for a small company. Later that same year, he developed a chat room which exploded in popularity and had the potential to print money. However, he cheaped out on the virtual server running it, causing it to crash, and most of the people left by the time he got it running smoothly. In 2003 and 2004, he was fortunate enough to have existing poker experience, just in time to make a lot of money during the new poker boom. In fact, in 2005, he finished third and then first in his first two World Series of poker events he ever played. With lucrative sponsorships being handed out like candy on Halloween night in the suburbs, did he score a big endorsement opportunity? No, because for reasons nobody can figure out, he decided to associate himself with a website full of misfits called Never Win Poker, where the entire content consisted of offensive memes and pornography. In 2007, he was cheated on a poker site called Absolute Poker, and he was the first one to publicly call it out. In fact, hearkening back to his software development days, he called the cheater a super user, referring to a player who has access to see everyone's hole cards. Seriously, look it up! This artist was the inventor of the term super user in the context of poker cheating. Him being behind the invention of this term is a fact nobody is aware of nor cares about. However, it did give him an opportunity to somewhat reinvent himself and claim a new form of moral high ground. Today, 16 years later, he's old enough to join the AARP yet is still getting mileage out of the whole absolute poker and ultimate bet cheating scandal, posing as poker's unofficial police and running his own website called Poker Fraud Alert. Whenever virtue signaling pussies on Twitter give him a hard time about the politically incorrect content on his site or his often insensitive commentary on his radio show, he simply points back to those heady days of the late 2000s and asks, Did you put your ass on the line by going on national TV and calling out a Costa Rican crime ring running a poker site? Yeah, I didn't think so. Now he's made our countdown with his first hit song, which, judging by his history, isn't going to sniff anywhere near number one. Coming in at number 40 this week on American Top 40, here's Dan Druff with My Sweet Super User. Well, that's not very nice, Casey. Come on now. That's, that, a lot of that is not true. I mean, a little of it is true, but that just wasn't a very nice intro. And I never did that song. I never did a song called My Sweet Super User. Kind of a good idea, but I never did it. Anyway, I would sue Casey Kasem for this, but he's been dead for a number of years. So somehow he came back and did this. Either that, or maybe he did this before he died. I just never heard it. But uh, anyway, that's this week's intro to the show. Hope you enjoyed it. And welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. It is November 6th, 2023, right now, 10.19 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and I'm once again broadcasting from a secret location, and I'm doing something probably a little bit foolhardy. I am attempting to broadcast using the internet of this secret location rather than my cell phone. And I'm probably going to be sorry. I'm probably going to regret having done that. But 
that is what I am currently doing. So hopefully it will work out. But if the show does crash, then I will have to hook it up to the cell signal again and broadcast that way, which I prefer not to have to do, but, uh, you know, that's the way things go. So far it's okay, but I'll be watching. So if you suddenly hear me cut off, that is why I didn't die in the middle of the broadcast. Just the internet did. Hopefully in the coming weeks, I'll find a time to do it from my usual location so I won't have to use this uh, lousy internet in this particular secret location where I've been doing a lot of broadcast recently. Anyway, it's been since October 20th since we were last on. A lot of stuff to talk about. I do have good news for you in that Brandon Drexel Gerson is going to be on the show tonight. He just called me a short time ago and he will be on here. In the meantime, I want to tell you, have a free roll. I almost didn't have a free roll. I almost said, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to have a free roll. I'm just not going to do it because it's late and the show was not previously announced. We're going to have a very small field. But then I realized we haven't done many free rolls recently. And the show is not on as often as it used to be. So I didn't want to cheap out on the free roll. So we're using the other $50 that Hutmaster gave. He gave uh, $50 twice, also known as $100. So we'll use the second half of his donation for a $50 pool. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. 25 for first, six, 15 for second, 10 for third. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find the rules for the free roll at PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. The tournament began six minutes ago at 10.15 p.m., but don't worry about that. You can still get in. There are 25 minutes of late registration, allowing you to enter as late as 10.40. So you still have 19 more minutes to get in, and you start with a full stack. And should be very little competition tonight because there just simply are not that many listeners because people are not aware the show's going on. Most people will catch it in the archives as usual. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808. That's an old 70s rotary phone I have sitting on top of Mount Charleston, which is a mountain about 40 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. Always about 30 degrees cooler than whatever Vegas is at the moment. And yes, it does get snow up there. None right now, but there will be some soon. But the phone is and will be okay. You can also text that main number, 775-372-8355, anytime during the show or after the show or before the show, whenever you feel like. But if it's during the show, please be aware that I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning not to. Do not text the Mount Charleston line. I will not receive it. I do want to quickly mention, again, about the free roll. There's a lot of ways you can be paid. I can pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by various forms of cryptocurrency, and other methods you might be able to think of where money can be sent on the internet. So just let me know, and I can send it to you in a way that you would like. So I'm not doing direct bank transfers anymore, nor am I doing checks anymore. So you've got to have either some kind of internet payment app or website, or cryptocurrency. Those are basically your options to get paid. I also can't send you ACR money. I get that question all the time. We have a chat room. If you'd like to go in there and chat with any live listeners, there's not many people there right now, but uh, in case you're listening live, you can jump in there. And 
There's a call to listen line. Can't forget that. It's a very simple thing. You just call up and you listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone or a data plan or a computer or the internet. No, no, no. None of these things. You don't even need a good connection. All you need is a phone that can dial and make a connection to 518-931-1189. Works on any phone. 518-931-1189 is the call to listen line. You just call up and you listen. And when we're not live on the air, then you can hear our streaming reruns, where it just picks up one of our more than 450 shows we've done and just runs them as if they're live and then picks another one and another one and another one until we come back. Does a lot of work in between shows. And yes, people listen. You may wonder, well, who would do that? Who would call that thing and listen when you're off the air? No, we get a lot of listeners off the air. It's rare that there's not at least one person listening. And usually when I check, there's like three to eight people listening to the streaming reruns, which isn't very much, but I'm talking about 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you can use it to your heart's content. If you want to find the show in podcast format, you can find it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeartMedia, Spotify, Bullhorn, CastBox, Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Say it exactly like that. Audible, we're still on there. And most importantly, YouTube. We are now on YouTube. We've been on YouTube since the beginning of September. If you can, please subscribe on YouTube. Please listen on YouTube. And please like the broadcast. Even if you don't spend much or any time listening on YouTube, please, at the very least, subscribe to the channel, which is very simple. It's youtube.com slash at Poker Fraud Alert. You know, the at symbol, youtube.com slash at Poker Fraud Alert, or you can just search for Poker Fraud Alert, three words with spaces in between on the search bar of YouTube. You'll find it there too, and you'll find every show in its entirety now on YouTube by popular demand. This is some additional work for me every week or every time we do have a show. The others all post on their own. Once I get them set up, they work automatically. YouTube does not. I have to post it manually. I have to convert it into a video file because this is an audio show. Take some time. So I am putting some effort into this every week. And if we get enough subscribers and enough listeners, then we will get monetized and Google will pay me. And that would be nice. I won't make big money, but at least I'll get something. We're not there yet, but the more subscribers, the closer we get, and the more listeners on there, the closer we get. So if you don't mind listening on YouTube, I would appreciate it. If you just don't like it, or it's just something that you don't care for, then that's fine. You don't have to. But uh, I would appreciate it if it's all the same to you. I'm going to give you the agenda, and then we will get going. I was victimized yet again by identity theft, and I'm dealing with this right now. I'm not exactly sure who did it. I'm not sure if it's related to what happened last year to more than 50 poker pros when they had money stolen out of their bank accounts by these fraudsters via BetMGM and global payments. I covered that a lot back then. It was the same time of year, but so far nothing has been stolen from me, but there are accounts being set up in my name. And the person doing it has a lot of my personal info. I've been investigating it behind the scenes. So I'll tell you what's going on with that. Next, we did a lot of coverage early on in the Sam Bankman-Fried story last year. And then we kind of let it die for the most part. But uh, very big news, I'm sure you've heard by now. He was found guilty in criminal court. Very, very quick this time. The justice system, which usually is not the way it is, but was very quick this time. So we'll discuss that. 
Another updated story, though a much smaller story on the global stage, much, much smaller, Chris Tunichin, poker player who is a high roller player and someone who was in controversy earlier this year, he's back in controversy after making a tweet about a private jet months after sharing a GoFundMe for his family. So similar circumstances the last time, but now it's even worse. And now Doug Polk has gotten involved, which he wasn't last time, and Charlie Carroll has gotten involved. So I'll tell you all about all that weird stuff going on with the Chris Hunichan situation, which just occurred within the last few days. I have yet another update for you about Josephine Ragland, the scammer who killed Bart Hansen's dog. She is being charged with felonies in two different states. So I'll tell you about that and play you some news reports. Then I'm going to give you a little bit of an update on Christopher Mitchell. A lot of updates on this show. But Christopher Mitchell has been banned from a casino, at least to my knowledge. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's pretty likely. And the person responsible for getting him banned was, at least in part, me. I'll tell you how. Then we have a segment which I know a lot of you enjoy. I wasn't sure when I started the segment if it would be popular, but people have liked it, so we were keeping it. Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. Except this time, it's both history and a current event, because Don Laughlin, who is really the founder of the town of Laughlin, the whole reason Laughlin, as you know it, exists, he passed away in late October. So we're going to discuss the life and impact of Don Laughlin. Former poker pro Sean Shikan has been sentenced to four years in prison for illegal marijuana sales. We covered that story before, and I'll tell you how it went for him in court. I guess you already know the final result, but we'll discuss it a bit more. Then we will take a break from poker and gambling news and the usual stuff, and we'll do a little lighthearted segment. We've done it before, of which of these statements about Druff are true. Now, we're going to do a bit differently this time. In the past, I was telling you stories, and then... You would guess if it was completely true, partially true, not true. This is going to be a lot simpler. I have five statements, five short statements about things in my life from the past. And you're going to guess whether it is true or not true. And uh, we'll see if we can do this when Brandon's on here so he can guess. And then you can just think about it yourself before I reveal the answers. See how much you think you know about me. And these are getting harder and harder to do because I've told you guys so many stories over the years. I'm running out of things to tell you that I haven't come up with. So I got to I got to dig deep in the well here in my memory to get some of these. And of course, the ones I make up, those are easy. But the real ones, those are hard to come up with. The Formula One race is going to happen soon in Las Vegas. It's going to happen on November 16th. And that's only 10 days from now. Unfortunately, all signs point to failure. Not that it won't happen, but that it's not going to nearly be the success that was hoped. And I'll explain what I mean when we get to that segment. The Culinary Union, which is in Las Vegas, it's a very, very large union, a very, very large labor union. It is not what it sounds like. You would imagine it's a union of restaurant workers. It is not. It does include restaurant workers, but it really includes just about all service workers at Las Vegas Strip hotels 
including things like housekeepers. So if that union goes on strike, this gigantic union, then the Las Vegas Strip basically grinds to a halt. And obviously the hotels can't have that, so they're basically at their mercy. So a strike was looming, but now they're close to a deal. And the details have been leaked. I will tell you what those details are. But nothing's been agreed to yet, but I'll tell you what is believed is going to be agreed to. Finally, there is now software. In fact, there has been for two years, but I just learned about it recently. But there's now software that can analyze your video poker play in the casino and then tell the casino how good you are. Not how much you win, not how lucky you are, not how unlucky you are, but how good you are. Whether your decisions on the video poker machine are correct, mostly correct, or pretty bad. So it can analyze whether you're the type of player they would like to have in their casino. Of course, the worse you are, the more they'd like to have you. So I'll tell you about that software as our final topic. First, let me begin by telling you about the situation going on with the identity theft. So this is really, really frustrating. I first noticed a problem last year when I was going through my bank statement online and I saw a $10,000 withdrawal from my account from BetMGM, which was very unnerving to see because I did not have a BetMGM account. So I knew this was just outright theft, that someone just outright stole $10,000 from my bank account. After I did a self-investigation and then also came to realize that other poker pros had been hit. Joseph Chiang had posted to Twitter that the same thing happened to him. At that point, I came forward and revealed what was going on with me. Prior to that, I was keeping quiet, just in case this was something maliciously being aimed at me. But once I saw it happen to Joseph Chiang, I figured it was something aimed at just poker pros and not uh, someone trying to do it to me in a vindictive fashion, but just more to steal. And that turned out to be the case. And uh, it turned out that more than 50 poker pros had fake BetMGM accounts and also accounts in some other platforms created in their name. And then due to a security flaw on both the part of BetMGM and their payment processor, Global Payments, if the fraudster had just a little bit of info on the victim, then as long as that info matched what was in the system and that person had used global payments before, which processes most e-check type transactions for legalized gaming sites. So like if you've played on WSOP.com, you've probably used them. Then it would give you a drop down to just deposit from that person's bank account. So it was incredibly simple for someone to make a fake bet MGM in my name and then take $10,000 right out of my bank account without ever any kind of verification being done. They just were able to just take it without my knowledge, without any kind of identity check, just the drop downs there. In fact, they didn't even need to know my banking information. They didn't need to know anything about my banks. It would just present it right there. Okay, which account would you like to use? And then the way they would get the money off, this is incredible that BetMGM was so stupid, they just had to change the bank account info at that point to withdraw to a different account and what they would withdraw to would be a Venmo debit MasterCard that they also made in my name and that has a bank account number that 
basically allows it to function as a bank account. It has an account number, so you can withdraw to them. And BetMGM doesn't even see it as a debit card. They just see it as a bank account. And then they withdraw to that card. And then once they've withdrawn to that card, then they have it in that Venmo account. And then the Venmo account can send it wherever. And it did. So that's what was being done to me and more than 50 other poker pros. It stopped just about a year ago. It stopped in mid-November 2023. And it actually prematurely ended because I led the charge of making a very big deal about it. And we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. But I really put a lot of time and energy into exposing this and warning everybody. And I went on other shows about it. I went on Joey Ingram's show. I went on Matt Berkey's show. Of course, I covered it very extensively on my show. I was urging people on Twitter to retweet it. And they were. So this became a big story. I spoke to someone from ESPN who then did an article quoting me about this, and it was on the front page of ESPN. So this got BetMGM's attention and Global Payments' attention when previously they were just dismissing me and saying, okay, yeah, our security will get back to you, and they never did. So once the ESPN article dropped and once they saw the negative publicity, then they acted pretty quickly and put an end to this. Now, there were a lot of after effects, unfortunately. I did get my 10K back, but for example, some people are still getting collection letters from global payments demanding either the money back or the proof that this was illegal, which is ridiculous. You know, they should have seen this is all part of one scheme through their own negligence. They shouldn't be putting onerous requirements on people to prove they were victims. Now, that didn't happen to me. They were afraid to send that to me because I was a very high-profile victim in this whole thing. I was the one interviewed everywhere, so that was, they didn't want to send that over to me. But to just about everybody else, they did. I shouldn't say that. It wasn't just about everybody else, but a lot of people got it. And then, to this day, I still cannot deposit in any way onto WOCP.com other than bringing cash down to the cage. So all of my electronic deposit methods on WSB.com, including global payments, including other things that have nothing to do with them, they've just been disabled, and I can't use them, which is very frustrating when I want to play on there. So that's very annoying. That's another side effect to the whole thing, which I haven't yet cleared up. But this segment is not about that. I'm just reminding you what happened about a year ago. Well, something's been happening again. I don't know if it's related to what happened last year. I haven't heard from anyone that this has happened to them. But then again, this is harder to see because nothing has been stolen, at least not yet. So here's what's going on. In early August, someone created a Discover Bank account in my name. And they had my full social security number. And they had my correct address. They had my correct date of birth. They basically had all the real information they needed to start the bank account. However, for reasons I don't know, Discover was suspicious about this and required that they do something to verify their identity. I'm not sure what, and Discover can't even tell me because the whole thing has, quote, expired by the time I spoke to them about it. So they claim they can't access this anymore. It just shows it's closed. But they do see that the person was asked to prove their identity. And of course, they couldn't because it wasn't really me. So the account was never fully opened. It was attempted to be opened, but then it got locked. 
and it would not open until that person proved they were me. They, of course, couldn't prove they were me, so then the 30 days passed, they didn't respond further, and the account auto-closed. So nothing was stolen, and the account doesn't exist, and in fact, it never fully came to exist. But in early August, someone did attempt to make a fake account in my name at Discover Bank, and they had all of my info to do it with. Why? I don't know. It might be something very similar to what was done last year. Could it be the same people? Maybe. I never found out exactly who was behind this last year. The San Diego County DA's office was very non-responsive with me. It was very hard to get a hold of the right person. They weren't calling me back. And the police just kept referring me to the San Diego County DA's office saying that they have to be the ones to tell me. Supposedly, they made arrests. Supposedly, they were looking to prosecute. But I don't know what happened from there, and I can't get the info. So if any of you have any connection to that office, uh, please look into this and let me know. I'm not officially listed as one of the victims, but you can look up Kina England. I know she was K-Y-N-A England, exactly as it sounds, Kina England. I know she was one of the official victims. So if you look her up in the San Diego County District Attorney's Office, you may see that. I, I don't know which perpetrator to look up because I don't know who it is. I was told that it was a fraud ring based out of that area, San Diego County. So that's all I know. Now, is it possible that not everybody in that ring was busted? Yes. Is it possible that copycats who know people in that ring just kind of took the ball and ran with it? Yeah. Is it possible this is totally different? Yeah. I don't know. But I do see some similarities. But then again, a lot of times these start to be similar to one another until the methods being used don't work anymore. So just because there's a similar MO doesn't mean it's the same people. In addition to the Discover account that didn't quite get created, there were also two fake Venmo accounts created. So if you look on Venmo and you see Todd-Wotellis-1 and Todd-Wotellis-2, those are not me. Do not ever send money to Todd-Wotellis-1, Todd-Wotellis-2, or Todd-Wotellis-anything, because my name on Venmo is not any of those. So if you want my Venmo account, uh, you can search it on there, or you can ask me directly, and I'll tell you my actual account on Venmo, but it's not Todd-Wotellis-anything. So if you get any requests from someone saying they're me and claim that they have an account like that, then... It's not me. And in fact, if anybody asks you to send Venmo to quote me, make sure it's really me you're talking to. So those two were created. And then also a Cash App account was created. And this was kind of really disturbing what I got in the mail from them. So I opened up a letter from Cash App. In the letter was a card, a debit card that can be used as either a debit MasterCard or debit Visa. I forget which one. But on the front of the card, it has the Cash App name tag, which is what people use to send it to you on the app. And on the back is the usual debit card number that one would use everywhere else. So on the front of the card, it did not say my real Cash App tag, which is dollar sign Dan Druff, exactly as it sounds, dollar sign Dan Druff. No, that's not what was on the front. That's what should have been on the front if it was really for my actual Cash App account. But I never asked for that card, and uh, I was surprised why I was getting a card. But when I looked at the card, I realized that 
I had not asked for it, even though it was addressed to me. Because it was for dollar sign Scott Danahy. Scott Danahy. <laughs> I don't know that person. I don't know Scott Danahy. And in fact, I can't really see that there's any Scott Danahy in poker. So I don't know where that name came from, but that's what it was. Dollar sign Scott Danahy. D-A-N-A-H-Y. I do see that there's Scott Danahy's around the U.S., but that doesn't mean anything. That just means that someone chose that name. Anyway, I went to go take a look if it was still active. And here's a trick you can use to see if a Cash App account is still active or if it has changed names. So I went to go look at this account, the Scott Danahy. What you can do is you can go to the website cash.app slash dollar sign and the Cash App tag. So I went to cash.app slash dollar sign Scott Danahy, D-A-N-A-H-Y. And what did it do? It forwarded me to the new tag on the account, which is PayNatasha77. <laughs> so I don't know if Scott here got a sex change and became Natasha, or if they decided they were just going to change it because they knew that card was going to be sent to me and were hoping I wouldn't find the actual tag. I guess they didn't realize that you can just do that little trick I did and come up with a new one. Or even if you don't know that trick, you can just call up Cash App and complain and they obviously have a record of this. So if you go to this, if you go to either cash.app slash dollar sign Scott Danahy or cash.app slash dollar sign pay Natasha 77, you will get a screen where you can send money to Todd Wittellis under that name. I obviously contacted Cash App and Venmo. Oh, look who we have here. Is this the fraud show? It is. We're actually talking about a fraud against me. Christ, is that what we've come to? Yeah. So, You're committing frauds in this economy, this Joe Biden economy? Well, someone's committing frauds. You could uh, send Cash App to fake me at dollar sign pay Natasha 77 on Cash App. It says right there, Todd would tell us, Wait. but it's not me. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Pay Natasha so, 77. Is there a fake Todd tell us? There's a fake Todd would tell us there, yeah. How are you discovering this? Because I got the debit card associated with it in the mail. Oh, you thought, yeah, this is what you, I saw this on Twitter, I think. Yeah. Or, you know, how much longer are we going to have to go where they actually, in news articles and whatever, they write, so-and-so said on X, and then they put in parentheses, the site formerly known as Twitter. Like, how, how, like a year, isn't it, to the point now that we, everyone knows they don't have to tell you that every time? Yeah, and I won't call it X. I won't call it X, just like I won't call the Washington Redskins the commanders. I won't call... Uh, yeah, the Cleveland, right, the Cleveland uh, Indians, the Guardians, right. Well, what would you rather call Washington if you had to? Did you know what their actual name was the first year? Yeah, I know. The, the Redskins? I know, it was the football team. So it's very dumb. either the Washington football team or the Washington Commanders, which one do you prefer? There I'd have to say the Commanders, but only by a little. But yeah. I, I'm just, I won't do it. Now, I will say at least X isn't for politically correct reasons. It was just for uh, Elon Musk branding reasons. I just think it's dumb, so I, I don't call it X. But anyway, this Natasha girl, she is a nice girl, just kind of trying to get her life together. I don't think she's very nice or a girl because it was originally Scott Danahy and it became 
pay Natasha, and I don't think either are real. But it started out from as Scott, and now it's Natasha. So I called Cash App, and um, it's very difficult to deal with them in Venmo. You you get foreign reps on there at a call center, and they're not very helpful, and they don't have access to much information. They just take it all down, and then they say they'll give it to the security team, and the security team will call you or email you, and they do neither. You never get an email or call from them ever. They promise it'll happen, Mm -hmm. but it never happens. So, of course, it didn't happen. Venmo told me that both fake Todd Wittella's accounts were closed and that they were closed before I complained about it, that they saw something suspicious and closed them. They couldn't tell me what they saw was suspicious, but they said it was closed on their side before I called. I said, well, were either of these accounts used for any transactions? And they said no. And then I asked, well, okay, can you give me the information on them? Um, you know, just give me all the info on the account. I knew they was under my address because I got the Venmo debit MasterCard associated with it to my address. And I knew it was in my name, obviously. But I asked for the rest of the info. And, of course, they said they can't tell me that because of a privacy violation. They might violate the privacy of the scammer. <laughs> yeah. People sure pick the wrong person when they do these things. Like, you know what I mean? They couldn't pick a worse or target. Yeah, <laughs> they're just fortunate the time, that you're going to spend the effort. Yeah, they're just fortunate that Venmo and Cash App are so incompetent. At least Venmo caught this before I called up, and and apparently none of this was used. The debit card wasn't used. The accounts weren't used according to them. So those were shut down. Mm-hmm. What was a little disturbing was that one of these two accounts, and you can still see it if you go on Venmo and search out at Todd-Wittellis-1, you can see that they actually took a real picture of me for the profile on the fake account. <laughs> now, I, I will give them credit here. I will give them credit for one thing. They chose a good picture. It a good photo of you? Yeah, it was a very good photo of me. So at least they made me look handsome. I give them that. So at least if they're going to make a fake me that scams people, at least the fake me is good looking. So I, I give them credit for that. They could have used like a terrible picture. They could have just grabbed a, a shot in a video of me where I'm making a funny face for like a split second and make that the picture. So they, they took a very nice picture and used that of me. But still, it, it was a picture of me, which okay, is... So I see, I see three Tawatelluses on here. There's a Tawatellus 1, there's that, a Tawatellus 2... There's a dandruff poker. Well, okay, you just gave it away. I, I was going to let people find it on their own, but he's, I'm the dandruff poker, and the Todd Wittellis ones are fake. So the one with, I, I assume you're referring to the one with the, the L.A. Dodgers hat. Yes, yes. Okay, so that's a, so who set up Todd Wittellis too? Same people. So there's two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Well, how do you, do you know it? Do you know it's the same people? Yeah, they were created right around the same time, yeah. Neither one has a friend... And neither one has made a transaction. Yeah, that's what they told me. So, so th- that's because it got that shut down before they could do anything. So, and then there's the Cash App, which is currently Pay Natasha. You just go go look the Cash App slash dollar sign Pay Natasha seventy seven. You'll see it. No picture on that one, but you'll see it. And oh. Cash App says they're going to freeze it, but uh, oh, here's another annoying thing. This this just pissed me off. In fact, I did something for the first time in my life. I have never once made any kind of regulatory complaint against any company ever, which you'd expect maybe. I, yeah, you'd expect I probably would have by now, but I never have. I've always 
solve the problem on my own. It would have been a heavy betting favor in Vegas, even. Yeah, it definitely would have. The Westgate would have put a, a very uh, steep favorite what line. What is the name? I, I just went there because you told me to. What is the name to look up on Cash App? Pay Natasha 77 So Cash App, I get some foreign rep. And at first, she's cooperative. At first, everything's fine. It's you know, kind of standard, not very useful, but okay call. And it started to break down at the end when I said, okay, well, can you make sure to suspend Pay Natasha here? Because it's a fake account that's made in my name. And you're spelling Natasha, N-A-T-A-S-H-A? Yes. I'm not seeing anything. I'm seeing a Pay Natasha 22, uh, a Pay Natasha today. There's no Pay Pay Natasha 77. Okay, well, then uh, it it may have been suspended. You can see it on the website. The website will show it. Okay, I'm on the app. Okay, interesting. So, anyway, I was asking them, can you freeze the account while you're looking into this? And they said, well, yes, we're sending it to our security team. They'll decide what to do. I said, yeah, but in the meantime, this person can keep impersonating me and scam people. Can you at least freeze it? Because they're using all my info. It's not even like it could be a different Todd would tell us because they use the same address and the same date of birth. They use the same everything so it's obviously a clone of me, and I already have a Cash App account. I'm dollar sign Dan Druff on there. So obviously it's a fake account. Obviously there's no harm in them suspending it at my say-so, and obviously I can prove who I am. So I said, can you please suspend this right now pending an investigation? And they said no. I said, what do you mean no? Well, we've got to go do the investigation first, then we'll suspend it. Okay, when's the investigating, when is the investigation going to be? They said, well... It should be within 10 business days, which is two weeks, but maybe a little sooner. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There are other, other Todd Lutellis on Cash App, too. Ah, oh, shit. There's probably more of them. There's, uh, two of, there's two of them. I didn't even know that. What's the other one? There's, okay, hold on. There is, I'm going back to it. So I, there is a Todd Lutellis. There's T-O-D, cat, you know, dollar sign, T-O-D-D, and then your last name. Then there's a Todd Wattellis, or I'm sorry, there's a Todd Wattellis, like T-O-D-D-W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S-S. <laughs> and then there's a Todd Wattellis, T-O-D-D-W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S-T. So there's actually three of them. Great. With a version of the name. It's the correct spelling. One of them has an extra S at the end, and the third one has a T after the S. Yeah, I'm seeing this. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to uh, go... Call about these tomorrow. Lovely. Now, are you the only Todd Wattellis in, in the in the Cash App uh, ecosystem? I'm the only Todd Wattellis in the world. Okay, so these are fake then. They're 100% fake. Yeah, it's more of the same thing. Okay, I'm going to have to go complain about these two. Lovely. So mm-hmm. you see what's happening here. But anyway, that will kill, th- kill your Wednesday. So l- listen to what happened, though. This, this is really awful. I'm complaining here, and it's, it's very valid that I asked them to suspend the account that's a direct clone of me. They can't make the case it might be another Todd Wittellis because it's got the same info, same address and everything. So unless they think that there's a second Todd Wittellis living at my address with my exact date of birth, uh, that's a hard case to make that it shouldn't be suspended. But no, it has to be done by this team within two weeks. So I said, well, come on, that's crazy. At the very least, it should be suspended while you look into it. So she kept repeating various forms of, sorry, it's going to be 10 business days. Sorry, it's going to be 10 business days. Just various ways of saying the same thing. And I kept saying, no, that's not acceptable. So then I asked uh, 
can I speak to a supervisor there? Oh, the supervisor is going to tell you the same thing, which is an answer I hate. So I say, I want to speak to them anyway. And she started to get more and more irritated with me. And finally, when she got tired of arguing with me about it, she said, well, apparently you don't like the way we're doing things here. So I'm just going to close this case right now. Goodbye. And hung up on me. And no report was submitted because I called right back. Of course, I reported her to another foreign call center employee, so probably nothing's going to happen. But I reported her, and that person verified that, yes, a case began and was closed within minutes, and that no action was taken to do anything about paying Natasha 77, that it was all just left alone, that she just got frustrated and forced closed the case on me and hung up on me. So not only did I complain about her, not only did I have them reopen the case and resubmit it, but I actually went to the Department of Consumer Finance, the, the, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, which can be reached at consumerfinance.gov. Now, are you familiar with this bureau? I'm not, no. Okay. Worries. I will admit I've heard of it, but I didn't know that much about it. I learned about it like over the past two weeks or so. So the... The Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, it's actually called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is attempting to pressure various financial institutions to treat people fairly. It's kind of like a better business bureau, but with actual government power, but only for financial-related businesses. So you can't use them to complain about Burger King or something like that. You'd have to only complain about uh, financial businesses, such as banks, lenders, payment apps, etc. So Cash App does apply to this because it is financial. So what you do is you submit a complaint. If you're unhappy, if you think you've been screwed by any of these financial businesses, you submit a complaint... And then, very much like the Better Business Bureau, which, again, is not a government organization, while this one is, the BBB is not, and the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau is, they both do the same thing at first, and that is they contact the business, show them your complaint, and say, hey, go resolve this with the person. And then, if it doesn't get resolved, then they can intervene and try to encourage them to do the right thing. They're not like an arbitrator. They can't uh, directly force. It's, it's not like uh, you're complaining to the Nevada Gaming Commission about a problem with a casino where they make a decision. But uh, this is one of these things that if the business does not make it right, and if the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau believes that a wrong has occurred, they can take uh, various action or even just kind of note in their own internal stats which businesses are kind of causing a problem maybe to take action later, not for that particular instance, but you know, maybe like a, a bunch of things combined. For example, like if a bank keeps getting complaints that they're not lending to black people, and when they look into it, they, they keep seeing evidence that the bank is purposely not lending to black people, even though these black people are just as qualified as the white people. That, that's one where like maybe if there's one instance which isn't super blatant, they won't do anything. But if they get a lot of these a disproportionate number of complaints, then they will take action. So that, that's basically what this uh, bureau is. So I submitted a complaint about Cash App here. I submitted that 
they were not taking this seriously, that they opened a case and actually reclosed it minutes later to punish me because they didn't like that I was unhappy that they weren't taking action immediately against the scammer. So I opened this case, and uh, unfortunately with the government, everything's slow, so I have not gotten a response yet. But I did open an official case with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is the first time I've ever made a complaint in my life to a regulatory body in the government. And it's because I was really pissed off that a Cash App employee, even one based outside the U.S., would do this to me when I've been a victim of fraud and when I'm unhappy that they're going to leave the fraudster's accounts open for two more weeks when it's super obvious it's fraud, that they actually get nasty with me and tell me they're going to close the case and shut it down and hang up on my face. It's really awful. So I put that complaint through and we'll see what happens. I guess I have to make another Cash App call tomorrow about these other accounts you've found, about the various forms of Todd would tell us. So yes, I'm at Dandruff Poker on Venmo. I'm dollar sign Dandruff on Cash App. And any other Todd would tell us on those platforms is not me and do not ever send that person money. Now, to answer your question, Brandon, as to what's the goal here and what are they doing with it, the short answer is I don't know. The slightly longer answer is that it is probably meant to receive payments through some kind of scam that is similar to what happened last year, to where someone's probably going to make a fake account in my name and then cash out to these. The fact that they requested a Venmo debit MasterCard and a Cash App debit card, both of which can be used as cash out methods from these legalized gambling sites, that really makes me think that the plan was to use something like that because you actually you have to specifically request those cards. It doesn't just automatically make one for you. So that's what I think is what's going on. I know these cards have become a common tool for scammers to basically use as an exit strategy to get the money off because it's perfect because it acts as a bank account. It can receive money, but the money actually goes into the Venmo or Cash App account, and then that can be sent anywhere. That can be sent all over the web. So that's basically how they get the money off of whatever they steal. So from what I can see, and I've been checking on my banking accounts, nothing's been stolen yet, but uh, that's the other thing. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop and have something similar happen to what happened last year. So do I think this is maliciously aimed at me? Probably not. It is also possible that this is an impersonation scam where people will trade money and pretend to be someone who's known in poker. And then it turns out that it's not actually them. Many years ago, someone actually did this. Remember Steve the Pimp? Yeah. Yeah. Steve Steve the Pimp pretended to be Todd Wittellis. Actually, I can't. You know what? I, I, I'll take that back. It may not have been Steve the Pimp. He did this all the time to other people. I'm forgetting if this one to me was Steve the Pimp. This may have been slightly before his time. So I don't want to blame Steve, who, by the way, a quick aside, he actually messaged me on Facebook like two years ago and claims that he's different now and he doesn't do any of this stuff anymore. He's a good citizen, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know. But uh, um, someone, maybe Steve the Pimp, maybe not, made a fake Todd Wittellis on Poker Stars, or sorry, on, on uh, Party Poker and traded for Poker Stars money. So the account was actually named Todd Wittellis on Party Poker. This is back when you could still play on Party as an American. So this is uh, like 2006, I think, or 2005. 
and the person then was requesting a money trade. They said, here, send me $1,000 to the Todd Wittellis account on Party Poker, and I will send you 1000 on Poker Stars from the Dan Druff account. But of course, it wasn't really me, so the other 1000 never came. So someone went on 2 plus 2 at the time and complained that I had scammed him in that fashion. And I said, whoa, 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 that wasn't me. And in fact, on Party Poker, while I have an account, I'm not Todd Wittellis on there. So that's a completely fake me, and you got scammed here. So the person felt very bad for accusing me like this. I understand why they thought it was me, but they felt bad for just being sure that I did this to them. So I said, okay, look, I'm going to try to make this right. I can't guarantee anything, but I'm going to try to call party and see what I can do for you. So fortunately, whoever did this hadn't transferred the money out yet. The thousand was still there. So I talked party poker into shipping the thousand back to this person and then closing the account. So then I let them know that they have their money back and they, they thanked me profusely. They said, oh my God, thank you. You didn't have to do that for me. I said, well, you know, if, if my name's going to be used to scam people, even though it's some effort, it wasn't a ton of effort, but yeah, I'll, I'll put in a little effort to get your money back there if my name's going to be used to scam you like that. So I'm glad you got it back. I'm glad the scammer got nothing and uh, glad this is over. This goes back wow. 17 years or 18 years, whenever this was. I knew it was while well, we could still play on party as it United States resident. So uh, it could be something like that again, but I haven't seen evidence that that's happening either. No one has said to me, hey, Druff, you said you were going to send me money on such and such site and you never did. What happened? No one's said that to me. So I assume this hasn't happened yet either. So my guess would be this is not aimed personally at me, but this is something similar to last year. But it's disturbing to keep finding this shit. For some reason, the picture thing is really getting me too. It's a good picture of you. Yeah, they actually used that picture. Yes, yeah, that is a good picture. See, I told you. Now, Benjamin was actually next to me in that picture, but I cut him out of it. It was me and him at the All-Star game in L.A. at Dodger Stadium. That's where that was taken, yeah. So anyway, that's going on right now. I'll let you guys know any update. Not quite as uh, exciting as the BetMGM scandal where 10K was stolen from me and various amounts of money were stolen from uh, 50-plus poker pros. But still... Very bothersome. Same time of year, too. Okay, so let's move on to a bigger subject. One that I know Brandon has a lot of knowledge. He follows this a lot. And this is Sam Sam Bankman-Fried. And the fact that a verdict has come down, which I'm sure you all have heard about. I'm sure I'm not uh, giving you news that you haven't heard. Last Thursday. Last Thursday, which was very quick. I, I thought this was going to drag on for years. Well, there's some controversy about that, too. Yeah, it's a very quick verdict here. But Sam Bankman-Fried, about a year after the whole thing came into prominence, in fact, a year ago today, it still hadn't fully hit the fan. Sam Bankman-Fried has been judged guilty. A year ago today, he was living in the Bahamas, still living it up, $4,000 a day in DoorDash. We didn't even know about it yet. It's amazing. Whereas it takes Elizabeth Holmes almost 10 years to see, like, a prison wall. Like, it's very odd. It is odd. I will say one thing that's interesting that I'm positive you don't know. So long story short, the jury uh, went into deliberations. Closing arguments ended last Thursday uh, around... 4 o'clock, 4.30 Eastern Time. And LOL, 
there was a jury member that and they didn't say what this was, what the exact extent of the occasion was, but a jury member had told the court early on that if she's on this trial, the preceding day, that Friday, whatever, what, what would Friday have been? Uh, Friday would have been like November, hold on. November 3rd. The story was out. Okay, right, November 3rd. So back in like September when they were doing jury selection or whatever, she told the court that she had a very important birthday party to go to on November 3rd. <laughs> and the day, I'm sure, maybe I'm sure she said whose it was, but none of this was released. I don't even know if it was a male or female jury. So she's like, or he's like, you know, if you need me, I'll be on the jury, but I have to be at this party. So anyway, <laughs> long story short, when the judge gave the jury the instructions last Thursday, okay, uh, the, the judge basically said, well, we're going to give you guys until 8 o'clock tonight. Uh, you have until 8 o'clock. And the other thing I didn't even realize is when you know, they said this, when, when you're a jury like that, they let you, like, order in whatever you want, food, food-wise. So anyhow, they gave them carte blanche or, like, whatever you guys want to eat, we'll bring in dinner. But I guess there's some kind of rule that they had to they have to convene for the night at eight o'clock, and so anyhow, the judge told everyone because I guess there were people in the court that didn't know this juror number seven or whatever has a very important birthday party to go to the next day. So if a decision isn't reached today, we're going to take a long weekend and <laughs> come back on Monday. And it was very it was very very odd because like there was objection both from the prosecution and the defendant and i would have assumed that they already knew this well in advance that a jury member had a birthday party to go to and that the jury wasn't going to meet in fact the prosecution asked for an alternate one of the alternate jurors um you know i'm sure most people know like anytime there's i don't know if it's every case but at least every time there's a high profile case there's an alternate jury in case someone gets sick uh you know they had it a lot it became useful during covid if someone caught covid or if, you know, someone makes a mistake and gets kicked off the jury, then there's someone that comes right in. They follow it along. They do everything other than participate to name an official juror. So, yeah, the prosecution wanted one of the alternates to replace it. The judge said, no, no, what we're going to do is we're going to treat this as a three-day weekend then. If they, you know, whatever. And, then, you know, I don't even know if he said, like, if they can't come to a, you know, verdict in three hours or four hours. Cause they probably assumed they couldn't. So, anyhow, long story short, they go to dinner. Okay, and they're, they're eating, by the way, too. And it only took them about two and a half hours, maybe maybe a tad under three, to reach a verdict. Most people were stunned because they thought with the birthday party being Friday, uh, you know, then Saturday and Sunday, obviously, juries don't deliberate, that it wouldn't reconvene until Monday. So the point is, though, there was some complaints and some talk that because of this birthday party, they rushed a decision, that they wanted to get the hell out of there. They didn't want to have to come back uh, three days later. You know, they would be off Friday, then, you know, because of the birthday party, then Saturday and Sunday they're off. So there was talk that they didn't even give it their full attention in terms of deliberating. But, you know, unless, like, a juror ever comes out and says there's some sort of misconduct, like 99.9% of these, like, cases in the event that the defense appeals based on some of that, you know, then it never pans out. You know, unless there's, like, some real blatant jury misconduct. Although it's interesting, when I was reading this during the trial, they said a number of times, when the uh, the prosecution, the state was going over the technical aspect of their case, like you know they had you know flow charts and numbers that multiple jurors were caught sleeping in the middle of it, like literally sleeping their eyes closed because it was so long and monotonous. <laughs> so anyhow, no one expected it to end Thursday. Everyone expected them to deliberate, okay, and then come back Monday at nine a.m. and start fresh. So it was a shock to both 
the plaintiffs and you know the defendants, and probably more so the the, the the defense because they always say they always say when a jury comes back really really fast, it's usually for the defense. Usually means they've made up their mind pretty quickly that they're going to convict. And it's something like this where it already didn't look good. You know, they knew the writing was on the wall. So anyhow, go ahead. But I just thought that was interesting. Um, you know, that whole birthday party thing that, like, you know, they didn't report. I was kind of curious what it is. Like, maybe it was like their, you know, could have been like their dad's 100th birthday or it could be, a, you know, but it was important enough that they're, like, from the get-go, like, all right, if you need me here, I'm there, but I can't be here on the 3rd of November. Like, you got to give me that day off. And they agreed. Yeah, that's really weird. I would have never guessed they would have postponed something like this or even mentioned this as a reason to well, kind of rush the, the verdict. To, they didn't have to because they came, they, they came to, you know. No, I know, but it sounds like they kind of rushed the verdict uh, because of that birthday party, which is such a weird reason. It yeah. must have been some yeah. important birthday. So, well, whatever. We, you know, already basically said it. So they came back right before, like, with maybe 30 minutes to spare, so about 7.30 uh, Eastern time on November 3rd. And they had, the judge had told them 8 o'clock, I guess that was just, you know, it was their first day deliberating, but, you know, I guess they're not going to keep them there to midnight all through the night. And they came back at 7.30. The judge was still in the building, but he was already, like, undressed and wasn't expecting to go be back in the courtroom. Had to put back on his robe. And I don't even know if prosecutors were there, like, you know, like, waiting, because no one, no one anticipates it. You know, so they got SBF out of the holding cell and went back into court, and they found him guilty on all seven counts. And immediately, now there's no cameras allowed in this trial, for those that are wondering. So we had to rely on LOL, like what I think are like gaffish sketch artist photos. Because <laughs> like, when I say that, I mean, I saw some of the photos, especially of this Caroline Ellison girl. And geez, man, it's the opposite of you and your fake cash out photo. In other words, these photos, sketch artist photos, were not flattering at all. Um, of especially of this poor Carolyn, I shouldn't say poor, but especially of this Carolyn Ellison girl. Very yeah, I saw girl. that, and and it's funny because SPF. There was a photo that was a, photo, a drawing of him where he looked great. That it was like it was like model version of SPF. If he were like thinner and had more of a, like a chiseled looking face, and his hair looked better, like it was like an alternate universe SPF where he's really good looking. That it was very weird, and I, I saw that going around the internet as a meme. And then I saw what you were talking about with Caroline Ellison, where they made her look deformed. Like she looked like she had Down syndrome. Yeah. So, yeah, it, there was only uh, four hours of deliberations, and yeah, he had pled not guilty to two counts of fraud and five counts of conspiracy. He did take the stand, which was said not to go very well. I didn't see that. Did you watch him taking the stand, or, or not watch? But did you? Uh, did you? Well, there's no TV. Yeah, there's no v- video of it. I mean, like, but I, I didn't read the transcript. So, no, I, I mean. read. I read the excerpts uh, of it, and so there's three or four things that was a takeaway from 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 him testifying. A, it was clear that his defense had team had told him that it was going very poorly, and he need, needed what the media termed a or legal experts termed a hail mary which is why he testified. Normally, you don't see defendants testify in criminal trials like this because more times than not, it can only hurt you and it very seldomly helps you. So they knew they were losing. And again, you know, legal experts, media people stated their theory was because SBF had uh, in the past given so many different interviews, you know, even speaking on panels with former presidents and such, that he was well-experienced 
kind of maybe transform the jury and like win them over like he had won over, you know, the media and, you know, luminaries and other famous people over the years in his interview. But it did not go well. And the takeaway was, uh, besides what I just said, that he was being blatantly dishonest on the stand. He said the term, I do not recall, well over 100 times. In fact, the uh, plaintiffs, when they did their, or in the plaintiffs, when the state did their closing arguments, they actually had recorded the number of times. I don't remember what it was. But, like, they knew it to the T, how many times he said he, he didn't recall. Um, and then the worst part was they provided damning evidence that counteracted his or contradicted his uh, testimony, meaning, like, he would say one thing, like, this isn't true, or I never said that, and then they found signal uh, chats and emails that purported the total opposite. So but he perjured himself on the stand, and they, they used this in the closing arguments. Um, so anyhow, quick question, because you're, you know, same age as me, roughly. Who famously, okay, in the 1980s, went under oath, said, I do not recall, over 100 times? And it kind of became a laughing stock for many years. But then later on, it turned out to be, well, you know what, maybe he really doesn't recall. Well, yeah, that was uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, okay, in regards to what? The, the Iran-Contra scandal. Iran-Contra scandal. Yeah. Very good, very good, yeah, yeah. But, but then when they found out he had Alzheimer's, yeah, probably yeah that's true. Like he, yeah, he, he was lying. And, right, right. And maybe, but, you know, like now looking back or even, you know, whatever, 20 years ago, yeah, he probably had no idea. You know, he really didn't remember. So, anyhow, okay, so this is where it gets interesting because it was blatantly proven that he lied under oath not only just, you know, it's one thing to say I don't recall even if you do, but some of the statements that he gave, uh, you know, even though they were vague and at times rambling and misleading, they were proven that he was, you know, effectively just lying um, because they would, you know, they had all the signal messages proving, you know, you, you were there for this. When this was, you know, authorized, you were a part of it. You were, you know, but when the judge sentences him in March, which, by the way, I don't know why it takes that long, why it takes six months. The sentencing is sometime in mid-March. Uh, they say that the legal people, legal experts, you know, whatever, that the judge will 100% bring up in court that he wasn't forthcoming and he wasn't honest and he lied and he perjured himself. And whatever leniency he thought he might get, whatever expectation he had of getting sentenced on the low end of the sentencing scale will now tip to the higher end if not even excessive end, because of the way he conducted himself. Uh, I don't know. They haven't really said if there was ever even a deal offered to him. Um, but anyhow, by the way he behaved and, and, and perjuring himself and his conduct during the trial, I'm going to guess it probably added on at minimum a decade to whatever sentence he gets, maybe even like 15 years. Versus if he would have just pled guilty and been remorseful. And apologized. And I fucked up. I took people's money. I got in over my head. You know, if he just, I don't know if you want to say either pled guilty or whatever the, you know, the approach you would take, it would have been much better, the end result, than what happened. He's going to get hammered by this judge. Um, I mean, he's, he's eligible by the sentencing guidelines to be sentenced to 110 years uh, in prison for the seven felonies total. Uh, most people, you know, Assume he's not going to get a life sentence. Some people say, well, what about Bernie Madoff? But those are two, they're still two totally different things. Where Madoff from the start, you know, was scamming people and, and started, you know, his mutual fund and, and you know, his, his uh, hedge fund 
with that sole goal. Like he never was honest from the start. Whereas you, you could argue this, you know, he never had a motive to do this. He didn't set out to start a company and defraud people. So, but anyhow, uh, it's looking like he's going to get, you know, well over 20 years. Like he'll be either in his mid fifties to maybe even early sixties before he sees the light of day. And because it's a federal crime and what he did, he'll serve like 90, 95% of the sentence because there's only very, very, uh, limited recourse, you know, in terms of like shaving off federal time, whereas like state sentences, you can sometimes get like 40% off for like taking certain classes for getting, you know, like, you know, you know, for just furthering your education, there are many programs in, in state prisons, whereas in federal, you serve 95% of the time. So yeah, he's going to miss out in his thirties, miss out in his forties, miss out at least on most, if not all of his fifties, and he'll be a senior citizen. The other interesting thing was that uh, during the sentencing immediately, when the, just the first count was read by the jury foreman as being guilty, both of his parents completely lost it, according to reports, meaning like they were, you know, the, the grief that they showed upon hearing it was indicative of parents that really thought like their son was going to get off, like that thought their son was innocent. They weren't expecting it. So, you know, there's, there's LOL sketch artists of that too, of that exact moment where it's like a photo of the mother, like totally collapsed with her, uh, you know, head in her hands. And then the father, you know, looking distraught. Um, so yeah. And they said that the only emotion that SBF showed was he was like shaking, like his body was shaking, but it's also kind of hard to tell. Cause like, if you watch interviews with him, like he's always kind of shaking, like, or like, or like rocking his leg or his knee. Like some people used to call that like the SBF ticks. Or like, you know, they kind of, I don't know if he never was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome, but, you know, one of those type of syndromes or symptoms, I should say. So anyhow, that's basically it. And so they uh, removed him. They said that he nodded in acknowledgement at, at his parents and then they you know, let him out of the courthouse, took him back to his holding cell at the Metropolitan uh, Correction Center in New York, which is the same place, by the way, where Jerry or Jerry, uh, Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide and where... Uh, his chick, literally, it's a, one of the worst holding cells, jails in, in the country. Um, you know, like rats and, you know, just really, really bad. Really, really bad. So, anyhow, he's there. He's going to be there for about six more months. And then in mid-March, we'll know. Um, you know, they do, like, a sentencing report where the judge will, like, hear from the victims. In the meantime, the judge will consider everything. And then people that, you know, want to speak on behalf of SBF will write the judge letters. You know, read the letters. Um, but I think it's a foregone conclusion that it's about 30 years. And you know what? I'll be honest. I mean, it's well within the judge's rights to give him life. You know, you can give him 110 years. I would, I would not be shocked. I don't think it's going to happen, but I wouldn't sit here aghast and, and just, wow, if he did get something, you know, preposterous like 50, 60 years. I wouldn't be shocked. And if the reason the judge uses in giving such a sentence because of him lying on the stand. And most of the legal community and people in the crypto world are calling for like the highest end of this to act as a determinant for other people that, you know, would consider doing this as well. Like a lot of people in the crypto world, a lot of advocates want this to be a harsh sentence to just deter other people from, you know, behaving like this and stealing, you know, there's a lot of obvious theft and shady shit that's gone on in, in crypto over its brief history. And they think by them, just handing him the book, literally, that it could, you know, stop that. So that's it with him. 
And then for those that are asking, or I wonder, there are three other parties, main parties, and I think that's it. Out of the whole SBF or, you know, the whole FTX gang, there are three other people that I know of and that have been publicized that have been charged in this. I haven't heard of anything else. One is a guy named Gary Wang, who was the uh, chief engineer. The other, I can't think of his name, but he was someone that was a fellow uh, co-founder with SBF, although he doesn't get a lot of attention, and he didn't have a split equity share, but he is credited as being a, a co-founder of um, FTX. Uh, can't think of his name. And then, obviously, Carolyn Ellison. They all pleaded guilt to several fraud charges literally in December of last year uh, with a deal that if they cooperated, told the truth, so on and so forth, that the prosecution would ask the judge to take that in account uh, during sentencing. But there was no deal made, meaning there isn't like, if you do this, you do that, you know, no jail, no this. There were no promises made other than that they would consider the fact that they cooperated. So after SBF is sentenced in, in March, then there will be a date set for the three of them to be sentenced. And that's kind of, you know, under a lot of speculation now, especially, you know, because there's a, a Carolyn Ellison, there's, you know, she's a girl and she's kind of like the face of the other three uh, in regards to whether she serves any prison time at all. Some people are saying that there's no chance she doesn't serve at least a couple of years because her crimes are still very severe and it's not an excuse. You know, like she on the stand testified that she knew what she was doing was fraud, that uh, at you know some point after initially being shocked, she became numb to it. And kind of, you know, didn't think it was not that it wasn't a big deal, but didn't question it and knew full, full well what she was doing, um, you know, in terms of writing. You know, she was the one that wrote the fake balance sheets that were given to banks, that were given to investors, you know, to borrow money, so on and so forth. Um, but anyhow, we'll know that sometime after that. And then there are other people that are thinking she'll get the three of them will get probation, you know, and because they cooperated and they literally sealed the deal. The three of them literally uh, did not hold back in their testifying in this trial. And without a doubt, that is what sealed up the conviction that the three of them cooperated and testified. And they all said the same thing. And, uh, there wasn't even much the defense could do could, you know, in terms of challenging their credibility, picking holes in their story, all their stories were the same. Um, there wasn't maybe because they're so young, you know, there wasn't a lot, any really skeletons in their background to question their credibility. There's nothing there. You know, there's nothing there. They came off as credible witnesses, and obviously the jury thought so too. They convicted him within, like, less than three hours, and uh, he'll be gone a long time. He'll be gone, you know, we might not hear when he's when he's out. Who knows? Yeah, and I want to quickly tell people that if you want to make an easy $37.50, I can't say it's 100% lock, but it's pretty close to it. If you go to bed online, you need a bed online account. And the weird thing is it's kind of hard to find within Bet Online. The way I find it is I just Google it and then just click on the Google result and log in. I also posted a link somewhere in the Poker Fraud Alert forum, but I would just Google it. But there is a bet that Bet Online is offering an over-under bet on 80.5 years. That's 8-0. 80.5 years over-under how many years he's going to get. And believe it or not, the underdog is the under, which you would think would be the other way, other way around. So it's plus 150, which means you get one and a half times your money is winnings. So you get better than even money winnings if you go under 80 and a half years, the sentence, and minus 200, meaning you only win half as much as you bet, 
for over. And that line is really misset. I would put a lot of money on that if I could, but unfortunately, the what limit. Is, what is it? What's, what's the max? $25? dollars So that's why if you bet yeah, under. They do, they do that from time to time as promotions for the site. They do that every year. Whoever wins the Super Bowl, the first game, or they've done this like the last three years. Every year, whoever wins the Super Bowl, they set the line, the total, at half a point the next year, and you can bet 25 bucks. Well, I've they seen that, that. But, but this is not being promoted that way. This is not being promoted like, oh, this is the easiest money you'll ever win. Because I've seen those promotions for the first game of the year where you're just betting on a, a good team scoring at least one point in the and game. Is there a rollover requirement on this bet? Or is it no, just it's just an outright bet. bet. Out? It's just an outright bet. So, huh. so you, you'll have to wait until March to get it. And it's only $37.50 on a $25 bet. So you will have $25 locked up. But if you have a bet online account with money in there, definitely uh, Google this and find it. If you really need the link, you can text me, 775-372-8355. I can find it and send it to you. But it really is free money because he's not going to get 80 and a half years. That is a life sentence, of course. Uh, it, it would leave him... Well, you know what? He can get 110. Why are you... So, I mean, it's not likely, but would you be shocked considering what I said about him perjuring himself? Yes, I, I, I would be shocked if he got 80 and a half. You, you, because it's, it's, that's a life sentence. I, and I, I, don't, I don't. To give a life sentence to someone who is this age, it's not like the, an effective life sentence to someone who's 70 already. To give an effective life sentence to someone in his early 30s, even though this is a very, very major financial crime, the reason I don't see him getting life is because, as you said earlier you know, on this very broadcast, this was not a premeditated scam. This was a company that he was taking seriously and he really wanted to succeed normally. And then when things started to go south, uh, then he started stealing. It was similar to what Full Tilt did. There's a lot of parallels. Well, you know, as a deterrent, the fact that he lied to the court and maybe you could even say embarrassed the court, you, don't, you can't see it. You know, and the judge is like an older, like no-nonsense 78-year-old man. That's the judge who's going to be sentencing him. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that's a favorite. For sure it isn't. I mean, let me be clear. It's for sure not a favorite. But, but, you know, the fact that he could sentence him to 110 and that, that he can't even appeal it. I mean, like, you know, that's what's, that's well within the sentencing guidelines. You know, that's what it, it's the high end of it. Well, it's not impossible, know. but I'm just saying I don't, th- I don't think it's going to happen. It's, it's very close to a lock. If, if I could bet more, I would bet a lot of money on the under, especially plus 150. Do you agree, though, that he probably is going to get an additional 10 years based on his behavior? And, and the fact, I know you didn't follow it, like, you're probably hearing that for the first time about how he perjured himself and this and that, but what would you guess? Like, just... Yeah, I, I, yeah I think he's going to get something like, like like 30 years or low 30s. That's what I think is going to happen. Right, but I'm saying if he had pled guilty, apologized, cooperated, everything from the start, what do you think he would have got if uh, none of the spectacle occurred? Yeah, then, may, then maybe it would have been something like 10 or 15. Yeah, that's right. That's my point. He's add, he added on a decade, if not more, because of the way he handled it. And you know what? He was never going to get out of this. Yeah, I he was, was surprised. Never, no jury that was ever going to find him. I mean, his best case scenario, his best. Uh, I'm hearing that echo again. His best case scenario ever was always going to be getting one sympathetic juror or maybe two and having a mistrial, and then they, they were just going to keep trying him again. He was never going to get acquitted. It just was never going to happen. And then the other thing that's really bizarre, and I always find this so silly, is that they're still saying that they are going to try him sometime next year on these other charges in regards to the, the political stuff and the China stuff. Uh, he 
they, well, they claim allegedly that he funneled contributions that came from him to other people to avoid campaign uh, donation limits, and that he made private, basically backdoor deals with China, with the government in China, without registering as a foreign agent. Um, but at the same time, they also say whatever those charges potentially bring, he would serve concurrently with whatever he's given for the fraud charges. So in essence, it doesn't mean anything other than, yeah, it's on his record. You can say, well, it's principal, but in essence, they, they're going to spend millions of dollars of taxpayer money. Because again, this is a federal trial, not New York, you know, taxpayer money, federal, you know, U.S. taxpayer money to convict him and nothing will change. And I always think that's silly. It is stupid. Like just, you know what, if, you, if you're going to give him 30, 40 years, why would you have another trial if it doesn't add on, you know, or, you know, so, oh my God, then he gets acquitted of that one and it means nothing. You know what I mean? Like, how do you even sell it? Yeah, it means nothing. I never like like concurrent sentences in general because, as you said, they're meaningless. They don't add any time. There's no punishment. The only way they can have an effect is if it just adds a certain number of felonies to the person's record to to where it can impact their future. But it's not going to matter here. Sam Bankman-Fried is so high profile that it's not like extra convictions will change anything in his future. So... Yeah, this is going to follow him around for as long as he lives. So the, the, whole, the rest is pointless. The rest is just so prosecutors can put an additional feather in their cap. Oh, look, we got more convictions here. That's all it is. It, it is a waste of taxpayer money. So if it's not going to be tacking on extra time to his sentence, they just shouldn't do it. I agree with you. So, yeah, any, anyway, I agree with you that he mishandled this. And I was surprised when he pled not guilty when I heard it, I thought, well, maybe he's got something that he could bring out to really create some doubt, but he didn't. Whatever thinking he had that he could get out of this was very flawed. Well, anyway, what I was going to say is, and you can tell me this, following the trial every day and reading whatever the media posted about it, I still can't even tell you really what his defense was other than it was a defense of I never meant to commit a crime. Like, outside of that, like, you know, it wasn't done purposely. It was more incompetence. There wasn't even a, a, a clear defense. Like, you know what I mean? And he should have known going into it the, the, you know, I made a mistake, but it wasn't intentional. And, you know, making a mistake isn't criminal. Like, he should have known. His lawyer should have told him that that's not, you know, an applicable defense to avoid, you know, conviction or punishment. Yeah, that's, like, that's you know what I mean? right. If, if he was going to so, take that approach and he just plead guilty and, and, and try to present just a young guy who got in over his head and, and thought, okay, well, I just think you know, I'm just really just borrowing this. I'm going to really put it back for everybody. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be okay. And he was just kind of delusional about how he could turn it around when he really couldn't. And it was in bigger trouble than he realized. And he could try to sell that whole thing of, I'm not really a criminal. I just uh, made a really stupid mistake trying to keep my company afloat and it hurt a lot of people. I'm really sorry. Uh, there's nothing I can do now. I, I wish I could get it all back. Like he, he could try to, he, he could project a combination of remorse and just someone who couldn't handle what was in front of him. They could, couldn't handle the downslope of the company and, and made some rash, stupid decisions and try to get some sympathy that way. But yeah, this this whole way he did it, where he pleads not guilty, doesn't have an explanation, and lies on the stand, it's just a recipe for disaster. And that's what happened for him here. Now, I don't feel bad, for, of course, for him. 
this is someone who just outright stole. I, I've heard the arguments saying, well, you know, he, this, he didn't start out trying to scam anyone or steal from anyone, and he was doing this with the motivation to keep FTX afloat, blah, blah, blah. But bottom line is here, and I said the same thing about Full Tilt and the thefts back then, is if you're holding somebody else's money, it is not yours. And you might like to do some things with that money, and that money could be convenient to prop up your business, but it's not yours. And if you take other people's money that you happen to be holding at the moment, if you steal their money to rescue or prop up your business, then it's theft. I think he's very similar to Elizabeth Holmes in the, in the sense that they're both sociopaths, that they both knew what they were doing and they're just, you know what I mean? Like, because he was paying, during the trial it was revealed, he was paying Larry David, he was paying Tom Brady, Giselle, uh, you know, Brady's wife, all those celebrities, that was, was, they were using customer money. It was all, it was money from Alameda, but that was put in there from you know, FTX deposits. I mean, you don't just do that, like, and then say, I made a mistake. Like, that's sociopathical behavior. The way he was spending, and it wasn't, you know what I mean? Like, he knew what he was doing. That's the crazy part. Like, it was proven. He knew what he was doing. Like, there was no mistake in any of it. Yeah, and I you saw know, the whole thing. Right, and I saw the whole thing that even a lot of parts of him that you would assume were natural aren't. Like, the disheveled appearance with his hair all messed up and the fact that he... Yeah, they he, spoke about that. They spoke about that during the trial, that all of that was set up by him in advance because he thought that he would get a bigger following, that people would love it. That you know, his actual uh, the actual quote they showed was a text message or a signal message with the Carolyn Ellison a couple years before any of us even heard of him, where he said that if people think I'm crazy, it's good for FTX. Like you know, being disheveled and being kind of out of it and being uh, erratic and being eccentric, that it would be good for FTX. It was all planned. Yeah, and also like, like even even the car he was driving was planned. Like he drove some crappy car. It was supposed to like it, it was all supposed to be just this semi crazy uh unusual genius who who uh makes huge money in crypto and is someone you can trust because he's so different because he's not like you so so all of this was cultivated this wasn't just like a different guy this wasn't a guy with these particular quirks who decided not to change them because he he felt uh it was working this was like a a character that was developed developed here that he wanted people to see him this way and he put he put a lot of effort to make sure he didn't break this character so this does point to a sociopath and it's fine that people can create a character that they want seen as their public persona as the head of a business but just nothing about him is genuine if you look at everything he says and does he acts like he's a genuine guy he acts like he's a real guy he acts like He's someone that you can trust, and he's the it's opposite of it. It's the same thing as Elizabeth Holmes with her voice yeah. and her mannerisms and, and her, her uh, turtle or black turtlenecks. It just really is. All of that was well thought out before, and it wasn't, it wasn't real. Like, it was to fool the public. It's really, 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 you know, that's why I say he's a sociopath. I think him and her are very, very similar. Yeah. Maybe that's who he should have dated instead of... Uh, she did the same thing. She never, she never took responsibility. She never admitted that any wrongdoing, you know, the whole time. I mean, up until, and then, you know, she was trying to weasel her way out of it. Uh, you know, I mean, fuck, she went as far as to have two kids. 
she went as far as to have two kids, you know, right before trial, and then after, you know, trial dates had been started, talking about Elizabeth Holmes, just to get sympathy out of a judge yeah. that you know wouldn't want to, you know, hopefully take two two newborn. I mean, one of them, one of her children now is like four months old. She was born like, or maybe not four. Was born in February of this year. So what would that be? Like six months, seven months? You know, no, that should be nine I mean, months. But yeah, close enough. Uh, okay, but whatever, right? But think about how sociopathical that is to bring two kids into this world knowing, and then the fact you're only doing it, you know, because you want leniency, you know. I yeah, mean, and I remember she she tried I to blame the whole thing on uh, on on the boyfriend, this uh, Sonny Balwani, who uh, you know, he yeah. was very guilty too. So he was no. Of course, innocent party her. either, but she but was mentally, she was mentally, you know, mentally and psychologically abused by him, and that's what led to it. Like it, it makes no sense. It's just people trying to get out of, you know, guilt, you know, for the, for their own misdeeds, you know. But the crazy thing with SBF is he didn't even have an offense. Like it just, you know what I mean? I didn't mean to. When you do something criminally, I didn't mean to. Isn't a defense of breaking the law? It's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. You know, so then it makes you wonder now, like, you know, about his parents, what are they going to do? And, you know, because now there's talk like they're going to go, they're going to start now that this part is off. You're going to see all these civil cases at the forefront where they're going after people that money, such as the endorsers or his parents that had, that received money, you know, and obviously they're going to try to liquidate whatever they can get back to pay people back their money. So that will be the next, you know, big news things we start seeing as the bankruptcy trustees start going after people to, and I'm kind of curious what will happen with the celebrities, because I don't really know if there's a precedent for that. Like meaning, you know, you're a spokesman for a company, you take a job, you know, based on thinking that you're going to be providing, you know, a service, you're going to be speaking on behalf, representing a company that is honest and, and, you know, truthful and, and moral. And then you find out that they're misleading everyone. It's fraudulent. Is it that person's responsibility to pay back the money? I mean, it, it, you know what I mean? Do they owe that to them? You know, I don't know. Like, if you do a job and then you find out the company that paid you is corrupt, how is that your responsibility? Like, why should you be punished if you provided a service? You know it's funny. I mean? There is, again, parallels to the full tilt situation because you had all those full tilt pros and also even more lock poker where you had these pros that were promoting it. And I've talked about this before. My position is that if it's just a pure sponsorship deal where you have no reason to believe that the company's fraudulent and that you shouldn't have a reason to believe the company's fraudulent, that you should not be, as a celebrity endorser, required to do a massive investigation of them to make sure they're legit. As long as a reasonable person in their position would not have a reason to think they're shady, and then they endorse them. If it turns out they're shady, those people should not be responsible. And I felt that way about Full Tilt and Lock Poker also. However, once it comes out that it is shady, or there's a strong reason to suspect it is, and they continue to promote it, then I think they should have some responsibility. So in the FTX situation, I don't think any of these celebrities uh, should be responsible. Because when they were doing it, they didn't have any reason to believe anything was wrong. So while this looks very bad now to go see these old ads of Tom Brady and Larry David and all that, uh, you can't blame them for not knowing here because at the time, everyone thought it was legit. Yeah, I agree. 
And let me tell you, unfortunately, I'm sorry. I am going to have to go in a couple minutes, uh, and I will come back. If someone just texts me, a friend of mine that's nearby, that's uh, stopping by, that uh, doesn't live here in Vegas. So I apologize. I will have to leave briefly. Um, but I'll be back at some point. So okay. if you need to cover the other topics, go. But try to save the Laughlin one for me. Because you know I have a special place in my heart. Yes. Life. Okay. So I will. Uh, I will save the Laughlin. I'll try to keep the other Vegas stuff to, to the end of the show as well. Yeah. And uh, I'll go to the poker type stuff that uh, you're you have lesser interest in to do when you're gone. Okay. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So yeah. So that's that's basically. And anyhow, to wrap it up, at least on my end, I think he's going to get upwards of twenty five to thirty years. That's what I think. I yeah, I agree. Like, you know, if I was in a a pool and you know we were wagering or whatever, I'd say he's going to serve a minimum of twenty five years, and I would not be shocked if it's even something crazy like you know forty or fifty years. I wouldn't be shocked. I and you're probably giving credit, you know that or likelihood. Um, but either way, yeah, I mean he's going to be an old grade man when he gets out of there. You know, that's and you know they're going to appeal and they're going to do this and that. I mean, I don't even know what the appeal would be. You know, they're like, what are you going to appeal? You know, like it was clear night and day what he did. You know what I mean? Like there's not even any, I mean, it took him three hours to convict him. Three yeah. hours. They said there was over 10 million pages of evidence. They never requested to like, you know, look at anything to have, you know, no questions to the judge, you know, during their three hours, three hours. You know what I mean? Like he just was just done. Did they actually print 10 million pages? Appeal it. Did they really print those pages physically? That's what it said. That's. I don't know if they did. They just said there was over 10 million pages of evidence. That's what they said. I don't know. I, I thought about that, too, when I read that number. I'm like, that's insane. I mean, I, you have to imagine it's digital. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like they, like they didn't print 10 How much room pages. would that take? Like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think how much room, even if it was really compacted, how much room would 10 million pages take, physical room, if they printed it out? I would, I, I would, like in boxes and stuff, it, probably, it would probably take up, like, I don't know, four or five hundred square feet of boxes. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking you know, of. That's a lot. I would, I would guess. Yeah, it is. It's nuts. It's crazy. Yeah. And then he's not going to get his Adderall in federal prison. Like, it, it's just, I mean, I, you know, I'm not advocating he should. You know, he's like a vegan, so he's facing a lot of lifestyle changes. Are you sure he won't get the Adderall? No. Because they, they will give medication in prison if it's needed. Well, he had he had a problem getting it at the detention center, and he and he, okay, even though they were giving it to him because his lawyer said that he couldn't prepare for trial, um, he had been taking three or four doses a day, up you know up until he was incarcerated. Now, during the trial and before, he was given one dose every day at five fifteen in the morning, and by about like eleven o'clock or noon, he was wiped out. Like, you know, he would, I don't think, you know, you get, I've never taken Adderall, but I don't think you get withdrawal symptoms from it. But, you know, after like, you know, basically after lunchtime, every single day, he didn't have the stamina, you know, the attention lawyer said, but they were giving him certainly, uh, in fact, I just looked, it was actually six. He was taking six doses a day when he was in the Bahamas before that, that's what he was prescribed for. They were giving him one dose every morning at five o'clock. And that was his only dose for the day. Um. So, yeah, maybe they give him one in prison. I don't even know. They had to fight for that. Yeah, I, I can see. You know, it's a good point, to... though. That they may conclude that he doesn't really need to concentrate in prison, and therefore he doesn't really need it. Yeah, and it's still, 
it's still it's still it's still a narcotic too. So I don't know how that works. Like, do they give people with like back pain and chronic pain opioids in prison? Uh, yeah, I, w- I would wouldn't. think so. I would think so. Um, according to what would be seen as medically responsible, you're supposed to get essentially the same medical care that you would get outside of prison. Otherwise, it's considered cruel and unusual punishment. But the Adderall, they could make the case he doesn't need it because unlike someone outside of prison that can say, "Well, I needed to navigate daily life. I needed to work." Well, he's not doing that stuff. He's in prison, so they can say, "Well, what do you need to concentrate on?" Hey, I'm sorry. Uh, my friend just showed up, so I'm going to hang up right now. You go on, have a great show, and I will be back. I will be back at some point, okay? Okay. Well, I'll talk to you later. That's fine. Okay. Okay. Thank you for having me on. I'll see you soon. Bye. Okay. Good night. Good night. Temporarily good night. But I guess we can move on. Brandon followed that topic very extensively, as you might have noticed. He was very interested in that trial. He basically ate up everything with it which is a lot more than I did. I was kind of casually following it. I was following it more closely at the beginning, and then I kind of got burnt out on it, to be honest. So that's part of the reason I stopped covering it on here, and also there just wasn't as much to say for a while. But of course we had to give this uh, big update and have the discussion when this conviction occurred. So glad I had Brandon on for that. And I am going to move on to talk about the Chris Hunichin situation. This is an updated story. As I mentioned in the agenda, we're going to have a lot of different stories that we're updating tonight on this show. So this is another one. And this is based upon something recent that kind of started this whole discussion up all over again. The first part of this controversy began in July of this year, July 2023. Chris Hunichen is known to some as Big Huni, and he is a big guy. He is a high-stakes player in the poker world. He plays <clears throat> a lot of high-stakes tournaments. And I really didn't know him very well. I don't even know if we've ever met in person. If we have, I don't remember. But I'd gotten along with him okay. This isn't someone I disliked or fought with. Coming into this whole thing in July... My opinion of him is what I would describe as like neutral positive to where it's someone I don't really know. I don't really have many feelings about. But, you know, if you ask me, do you like him or dislike him at all? I'd say, well, I don't dislike him. And he's always been cool to me from when I've interacted with him and I haven't heard anything bad about him. So I'd say neutral positive. But then came the controversy. But the problem and this seems to be the theme of a lot of these controversies this year for whatever reason, this controversy came along with a GoFundMe, and it came along with a situation where people also would feel bad for him. Now, unlike some of these other GoFundMes, which were fraudulent or semi-fraudulent, there was nothing fraudulent here, because the GoFundMe was about his dad passing away, and his dad really did pass away. So that really happened, and it really did happen around that time. But why was there a GoFundMe, given that Chris Hunichen was playing high-stakes tournaments? I mean, he was entering tournaments as high as $250,000 to buy in, which is way, 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 way more than I would ever enter. Two hundred fifty k for a buy-in. And he was entering a lot of tournaments. There were 50 k buy-ins, so... Yeah, it may not have been his money, or may not have been all his money. He may have been staked, I don't know. 
But he was a high-stakes player. And he was also tweeting a lot about uh, kind of a, a lavish lifestyle. And all of a sudden, there was this GoFundMe, which was asking for 15 k which, of course, isn't even that much money. Now, he clarified that this GoFundMe was not started by him and that he did not originally want to even share this with the poker community. This was started by his mom. His mom and dad were no longer married, but I guess they were on uh, decent enough terms. And even though we covered this before back in July, I will read this again to remind you. So this GoFundMe, Chris's mom wrote, Hi, my name is Susan Flynn. I'm the ex-wife of Ken Hunichen, who passed away unexpectedly on June 28th, and the mother of his three children, Chris, Kelly, and Matt. Unfortunately, Ken didn't have life insurance or a will or any assets that could be liquidated to help cover the cost of the funeral and memorial service as well as the repairs needed for the home, so his oldest son, Chris, had to pay for almost everything thus far, including an expensive private autopsy. I don't know why it needed a private autopsy, but let's just put that aside. His daughter, Kelly, and her four-and-a-half-year-old son, Tyler, were also living at the home, which needs a ton of work to keep the house livable so they can remain in the home. Any donations to help with the cost of the funeral and memorial and more importantly, fixing up the home would be very greatly appreciated. So that was what was on the GoFundMe. It was started by his mom. It made 6000 out of the 15000 goal. There is plenty of objection to this. Someone named Caveman responded, Big Huny plays high rollers and has a million-dollar-plus house and is asking for fifteen k for his dad. Is tournament poker that fake? Shameless behavior. I got nothing against charity, and I know from experience that losing a parent unexpectedly can be expensive, but read the room. Now, the way Hunichen presented this when he posted it back on July 24th was, my mom and sister set up a GoFundMe to help with some final expenses with the autopsy, funeral, burial, etc., and mainly for repairs to help my sister fix up my dad's house so her and her four-year-old can continue to live in the house. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And then he posted a link to the GoFundMe. So I talked about this a good deal back when this happened in late July. And my opinion of this was kind of in the middle, but closer to the opinion of the critics. Because there were two ways to look at this. One way is, hey, this isn't his GoFundMe. This is something he's just spreading around on behalf of his sister and his mom, both of whom do not have very much money. So in that family... The only one who has money is Chris, and the rest of them don't. So, since he does have somewhat of a following on Twitter, he was just figuring, hey, why don't I put this out there and see if anybody wants to help? And Chris himself had already helped them a lot anyway. So, it's not like he wanted everybody else to pay for the remodeling of this house while he pays nothing he had contributed a lot of money himself. And I believe that. That was the claim, and I believe that. So that was the pro-Chris argument. The anti-Chris argument is like, hey, you live a lavish lifestyle. You enter high-roller tournaments, very high-roller tournaments. This is only 15K. This is your family. You find a way to pay for it. If you think this is important enough to ask the community for the money, people who don't know any of these family members, they've never interacted with them, if you think the community should chip in 15K, if you think it's that important, you put up the 15K since that shouldn't be much to you. That should be peanuts to you. So that's what the anti 
Chris Unichin crowd was saying. And they were saying this is embarrassing for someone who's a high roller who plays these huge buy-in tournaments to be asking the public for 15K for his sister. But, you know, it's not that simple. So does it mean that anybody who plays high rollers can never share a GoFundMe on behalf of a third party? Can they not share one for one of their friends? Can they not share one for a family member? Can they not share one for a cause they believe in? Will the response always be, hey, deep in, go deep into your own pocket and pay for it yourself? And what about celebrities that promote various charitable endeavors and they ask the public to contribute? You could say to these celebrities, well, why don't you just contribute more? So doesn't this apply here? Some might ask. But as I said, it's only 15K. This shouldn't be much to him. This is a fraction of one buy-in of his tournaments. Why is he asking the public for this? Why can't a high roller come up with 15K? Even if he's not putting up the entire buy-ins here. Someone who lives in an expensive house and lives what appears to be a lavish lifestyle. How can he not come up with 15K if it's that important for his sister? Even if he's given money before, why can't he come up with his last 15K? Why does the public need to do this? So those are the two sides of this. Jason Moe, who is a former poker pro who's now more in the crypto world, he came very hard at Chris at the time and was very critical of him. And one of the things that Jason Moe was saying was that Chris apparently owned an NFT that could have easily been sold to pay that 15K and have plenty left over. So that was a good point, too. If it's that important to fix up that house for your sister, why don't you get rid of your NFT? Now, I said, well, sometimes all that glitters isn't gold. Sometimes these high roller players don't really have that much money. Sometimes they're completely back. They're very deep in makeup. Sometimes even if they appear to be living lavishly, a lot of it's just a show for the internet. And in reality, they don't have very much to their name at all. So I thought, okay, maybe he's been exaggerating his wealth all this time and he's heavily in debt and he just really gave all he can and the final 15K he just can't come up with at the moment and his sister needs it. Is it really that bad if he just shares this GoFundMe and whoever wants to donate can and whoever doesn't, doesn't? Where I ultimately came down, and this is back in July, was that the burden of transparency was on him. You can't just say, well, please donate 15K to my family to help my sister, and I'm not putting up that 15K, but I'm not telling you why. I'm not being transparent about my finances. I'm not going to explain why something that should be such a small amount of money to me isn't, and I'm asking all of you for it. Like, you've got to be fully transparent you come forth and just say, look, I know I appear to be a baller, but I'm really not. This has been kind of an act for the internet. Or I once was, but I, I've had a hard time in poker lately, and now I'm close to broke. So I just can't contribute anymore. I gave a lot to my family. I just can't anymore because I need the rest to make my mortgage payment. I need the rest to support my family. So I'm tapped out here as far as what I can give to my sister and my mom. Maybe you guys can help. And he says that he's 
given to people in the past and he's given to charity in the past. And I never went to verify it, but you know, maybe that's true. And that was some of the point he was raising, like, hey, I've been so generous all this time. Maybe you guys can finally be generous to me. But if you want to use that logic, you got to explain why they need to be generous to you. You can't just expect people to open up their wallets for strangers in your family when you are a high roller who's living a lavish lifestyle. You've got to explain why you're asking for that under these weird circumstances. And if you won't explain it, if it's none of their business, then you shouldn't ask for the money. And this has been my view on all these GoFundMe controversies of this year. That was my view about Jamie LaFay and when I caught some lies in her original GoFundMe. I said, look, it doesn't matter if she has cancer or not. If you're going to lie in your GoFundMe, even if the cancer part is true, then people really shouldn't give you money if you're not going to be honest. That was my take with Jamie LaFay. They caused all the controversy. And then with Rob Mercer more recently, he really should have proven the cancer that, of course, he didn't really have when he was asking for a WSOP main event buy-in based upon this cancer. So the burden of proof to show he really had cancer, terminal cancer, like he claimed was on him because he was asking the public for money. If he wasn't asking the public for money, there would be no burden to show this. But because he's asking the public for money, the burden was on him to show it, and he never did, and it turned out he was lying. Now, again, in this case, unlike with Rob Mercer, unlike with Jamie, I don't think there's lies here. I think this stuff is probably true, but there's missing information. Now, at the time, Hunichin contacted me and explained himself. And I, I don't know why he cared so much of what I thought, because we don't really know each other. But he, he contacted me and explained his side of things. And, you know, I said I understood. I kind of felt like he wasn't quite getting it. But you got to think of the optics here. It's not that you can't post something like this. It's not that it's a scam. I don't think it's a scam. But it's a matter of optics. It's a matter of how it looks. And if you don't want it to look bad, then you either have to explain fully to everybody why you're asking the public for this amount of money, which should be small to you and you shouldn't be needing, or just don't ask for it at all and don't share anything on behalf of your family. That's basically the same thing of you posting it yourself. It's like I was trying to explain this to him. It's just an optics thing. And he just wasn't really agreeing with that. So he told me a whole lot of personal stuff in these messages. A whole lot of personal stuff that I didn't ask. <laughs> he just dumped it all on me. And of course, I'm not going to share that. I'm not going to share personal stories about him and his family out here because it was a private message and it was something meant to be private. And if he wants to share these things, he can. I will say that it appeared that he did go through some pretty hard times over the past few years. And he's also been the one bearing the burden for a lot of help for family members. I do believe what his mom was saying, that basically everybody in the family is broke except for him, and he's been taking care of all of them, and he's probably tired of it. And yes, this GoFundMe probably was set up without his knowledge, and they probably came to him after the fact and said, hey, you've got a lot of poker friends. They have money. Can you promote it? And at first, maybe he thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't. Then he probably said, fuck it. You know, it's, I'm tired of having to always be the one supporting them, so fine. I'll promote it, and he didn't really think about the backlash. And, of course, it's also hard to say no to your mom. You know, his mom's asking him, so it's hard to say, no, mom, I'm not doing this for you. Think about if your mom asked you for something, even if you didn't really want to do it that much. So I understood all that. But, again, it did look bad, especially he was seen attending expensive UFC matches and taking pictures there. He didn't 
lived the lifestyle of someone who was broke, it looked very much the opposite. Every year he has this big house party for the 4th of July where they charge for admission and it's this big lavish party. Again, this is just not someone who appears to need to be asking for 15K or needing to be sharing a GoFundMe of an immediate family member asking for 15K. This would be the type of guy that would just give the 15K if he felt this family member deserved it. Now, I'm not saying that somebody who's rich automatically has to be giving to their immediate family members who aren't doing well. That's not necessarily your burden as an adult when they're adults. So you have to decide at that point whether this family member is just leeching off of you or if this is something they really do deserve. And if they've just been kind of a victim of circumstance and you want to help them out because you're doing well. And that's up to each person to decide. But once you decide that the person really does need the 15K, which it seems like he decided for his sister, then really it should have either been him giving the 15K or just not promoted this. I'm not saying the GoFundMe should have gone down because he didn't start it. It wasn't his, but promoting it was the problem. And he just kind of wasn't getting that. He just wasn't getting the optics of this whole thing. So whatever, I wasn't going to have like a long argument about this with him. Like I understood where he was coming from. But I mean, the guy's got a 10.8 million cash total from Hendon Mob, which of course doesn't mean much. He could still be down there and he could be backed, probably is. But still, he definitely was living a pretty lavish life, and this just looks really bad. And by the way, as recently as this year, he was entering a lot of high roller tournaments. And in fact, after all this, he entered a high roller tournament and cashed for 800k. That was after all this whole controversy. So okay, we've I've caught you up. I've caught you up, and I gave you both the info that occurred in July and early August, and then the whole thing about him winning uh, 800k at yet another high roller event after all this. So you'd think after winning the 800k after all this that he should have probably gotten something there to where he should be back in better shape financially if he was in trouble financially at all. Now you could say maybe he was deep in makeup and had to all go to the backer, but I don't know. He hasn't said that. If that's the truth, he should put that out there. But he's never claimed he got nothing of that 800K that he cashed. But people hadn't really been talking about him. People, you know, they remembered what had just happened back in July with the controversy about the GoFundMe. But, you know, he hadn't scammed anybody. This wasn't a huge deal. It was kind of just an optics, kind of like a bad form thing at worst. So it passed by and people moved on to talk about the next thing. But the problem came from a recent tweet. And this is just one of these times where before you tweet something, you really need to think, is this tweet going to cause a backlash that I don't want? And I go through that thought process sometimes. Sometimes I will sit there and think, okay, you know what? I want to tweet this, but I'm not going to because there's going to be such a backlash to this. It's just not worth it. And I'm not someone who's shy about expressing my opinion. And as you've seen from my Twitter, and as you hear on this show, I will write and say controversial things. But sometimes even I have to say, you know, this isn't worth all the hassle I'm going to get, all the backlash I'm going to get for saying something which I know is going to piss off a lot of people and get a lot of people hating me and getting a lot of people writing awful and nasty things about me. Like at some point, you got to say, okay, you know what? It's, It's just not worth expressing this opinion. This topic isn't that important. 
or maybe I just shouldn't post this. So that was this moment for Chris Hunichin where he should have thought about this. That should have been his thought process before he tweeted this very simple one-liner on November 3rd that I honestly think that he didn't realize was going to start off a shitstorm. I really believe, and by the way, he messaged me again, and I really believe that he did not see this coming. He didn't understand, once again, that the optics would be bad. But this is what he tweeted on November 3rd. And got to remember, this was three and a half months after he tweeted out the 15K GoFundMe. He tweeted on November 3rd, three days ago, anybody planning to charter a jet to the Bahamas from Vegas for the World Series of Poker? (laughs) Okay, so what he's talking about here is this controversial World Series of Poker series in the Bahamas where they are giving out real bracelets that are equivalent to the bracelets you would win in the summer. And it is believed that this Bahamas series, which is kind of almost like a replacement of the uh, PokerStars PCA, but it's believed that this Bahamas series is meant to directly compete with the December Win series, which did very, very well in 2022. And the World Series might have been a little bit worried that the WPT is starting to gain some momentum again and could compete with them. Because this was a very, very popular series in December of last year. So this is probably the World Series of Poker's answer to this, because they have it running basically at the same time as the WPT win. And a lot of people criticized that and said, look, we'd like to play both series. Why do you have to have them at the same time just because the World Series wants to harm the attendance for the win? The problem is the win was such a popular series and it was run very well, and everybody really enjoyed it, and it's easy to get to. It's right there in Las Vegas. You don't have to go all the way to the Bahamas to where this Bahamas series looks like it might be a disaster. It looks like it may not make much of a dent in the win numbers, and it looks like the win is probably going to win, no pun intended. But anyway, that's a whole different discussion. So apparently Chris Hunichin is planning to go to the Bahamas and play these World Series of Poker events. But that wasn't the problem. People weren't saying, well, Chris, why are you playing this? You know, people understand players are backed. This is what he does for a living. Fine. No one's saying, why are you playing this? The problem was the private jet thing. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but when I travel places, I never think about chartering a private jet to get to these places. What I do is I go on a website like Kayak to look up the various airline prices, and then I try to find the cheapest time to fly there to where I get the most for my airline money. Basically, I book a seat on an airline like everybody else does. And I'm sure that's what you do too. In fact, I think probably everybody on this show flies on regular airlines and doesn't think about chartering private jets to get to where they want to go. Now, if you're super rich and you just don't want to deal with the airlines and you want to take private jets around everywhere, okay, you know, go ahead and do so. Great for you. But that's something that most people don't do. Even 
most wealthy people don't do. Most wealthy people just fly the airlines as well. They'll fly first class, but they will fly the airlines. That's why you'll hear about various celebrity encounters on airlines, especially if you fly first class. You may look over and see a celebrity in the cabin with you, maybe even right next to you. So here's Chris Unichin, who three and a half months ago was sharing a GoFundMe for his immediate family for 15K. And now he's asking about if anybody else is going to be chartering a jet to the Bahamas for the WSOP over there in December. Presumably, he was asking this because, you know, he doesn't want to just fly on the jet himself. That gets really expensive. He's probably looking to go in with a number of people in Vegas that want to go to the Bahamas in December to pool their money together, and then they can all go on the private jet together there and back, and that makes it a lot cheaper. Because, of course, these jets seat a number of people. They're nothing like those big commercial airliners, but they can still seat a number of people. The more people you get, the cheaper it gets for you. However, this is a much more expensive way to travel than the airlines. So people are looking at this and going, what the fuck? (laughs) Why did this guy share a GoFundMe of his immediate family for 15K, and now he's talking about flying on private jets? Why is he not booking a seat on the airlines like everybody else is. Because the vast majority of people that are going to go to the Bahamas for this are going to just do it on an airline. They're not going to be thinking of a private jet. The private jet is when you want to travel in luxury. You want to travel in a way with less hassle. You want to not deal with all the airport nonsense. And all the airline nonsense. But it's a lot more expensive. Even if you go in with several other people for it, it's a lot more expensive. And the Bahamas isn't very close. This isn't like getting a deal on a private jet that can drop you off somewhere that's 45 minutes away. So you can get it pretty cheap. This is all the way to Bahamas, which is pretty far from Las Vegas. It's thousands of miles away. So this did not land very well. The second people saw this, they opened up the replies because they knew they would be very entertaining. It's one of these things where you see someone post a tweet, you go, oh my God, I can't believe they wrote that. They're going to get killed in the comments. And sure enough, you read the comments and they're getting killed. Like It's just one of those tweets. It jumped out at me as soon as I saw it. I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe this. this. I can't believe he's tweeting this. How how could he not know? How could he not know the reaction from people? And when he messaged me, because I'll tell you what I wrote back, which wasn't terrible. I didn't like really go at him, but I wrote something you know, a little bit critical. And so he wrote me a private message again. And I said to him, I'm not even criticizing the private jet itself. I'm just saying, like, how could you tweet this and not know the reaction? How could you not know before you hit send what the response was going to be. Because I knew. I knew the second I saw it, before I opened up the replies, what they were going to be. And I knew they were all going to be very negative, except for one from some of his friends. Pretty quickly after he tweeted this, Matt Salzberg, who is a part-time poker player, he goes back a number of years, but he's also a writer and producer in Hollywood. If you saw the series Weeds back in the 2000s, he was a big writer for them. 
So he's he's done a lot of work. You can look him up, Matt Salzberg, S-A-L-S-B-E-R-G. He's a nice guy. I don't think I've ever met him, but in my online interactions with him, he's always seemed nice. You know, sometimes he's kind of snarky and jokes around on Twitter, but, you know, he seems like a nice guy. Seems like a pretty low-key guy. He is, like, early 50s. I think he's slightly older than me. Unfortunately, he's actually dealing with colon cancer right now, and he never talks about it. He just kind of suffers in silence, but I'm not revealing his private business because he talked about this on a public Twitter spaces. That's the only reason I'm telling you guys. If, if he had told me privately, I wouldn't be sharing this, but since he said it out there on spaces, I assume it's fine to say on this show, but yeah, it was pretty sad. I mean, he's, he's going through a lot with that, but anyway, Matt Salzberg just responded with one line. No GoFundMe for this? <laughs> That's why they pay him the big bucks in Hollywood. <laughs> no GoFundMe for this. So, Chris Yunishia didn't take that very well. He wrote, LOL, with an eye roll emoji. Grow up, dude. Expect this from loser trolls, not from you. So then Salzburg tried to defuse it and said, LOL, sent with love from a roaster to one who can take it. So I don't know if Salzburg was really actually critical and they kind of walked it back when Hunichen got mad or if he really was just joking around or maybe a combination of both, but <laughs> Hunichen did not take this very well. But anyway, there were a lot of negative comments the one that got the most attention was that one-liner from Salzburg. It got 283 likes. To show you how badly Chris Hunichen got ratioed here, which is a term for when you have very few likes compared to views, he only got 20 likes on that tweet with 716,000 views. 20 likes! That's incredibly low. I don't think I've ever seen a ratio that bad. 716,000 views and 20 likes. There's no dislike on Twitter, but if there were, I'm sure we'd see a ton. So that tweet went over like a lead brick. People just were really, really giving it to Hunichin in the replies. There were a few people defending him. A person named Roberto Martini wrote, Wow, can't afford 15K for your father's funeral, but chartering a jet to the Bahamas is no problemo. Unless you're planning to leech off someone else who's actually doing the jet chartering. That sounds more your speed, scammer. Then Tahir Ali wrote, Rich people like you shouldn't beg for their father's funeral from other people. That's the least you could have done for your father, who you say that you miss him the most. Instead, you choose to beg. GoFundMe is for begging. Another person, Amir Abedin, wrote, Start a GoFundMe account for the snacks you apparently shoved down your mouth. That was a slam against his weight. Someone else wrote, someone screenshot this for the next time he's selling a piece of himself. Who would trust this guy after this? So, I mean, these go on and on and on and on. Someone else wrote, what about your father's funeral costs? Someone wrote, seek help and posted a screenshot of the definition of antisocial personality disorder. Someone else wrote, obese gambling addict keeps scamming. Another one wrote, you, sir, are a narcissist. Another person wrote, I hope every time you sit at a table for the rest of your life, someone tells the rest of the table about these shenanigans. I can only hope to get a chance to slow roll the hell out of you one day. So, I mean, this this was one bad and nasty comment after another. He did have some defenders. For example, Snoop Dogg, who we talked about recently, 
involving the whole situation with Rob Mercer, he wrote, Man, sad to see all the negative comments about the Pasco Fund Me. One, no one knows the intricacies of Huni's family or what he's helped with. Two, no one's business. Three, his father just died. Who cares about anything else regarding that topic? Four, pocket-watching is thumbs down. By pocket-watching, he means looking at how much money someone has and giving them a hard time over it. So I don't really agree with Snoop Dogg here. When someone puts out a GoFundMe or even shares one of an immediate family member, then you do have to pocket-watch because then you have to say, well... Why is this person asking for money or helping an immediate family member ask strangers for money instead of just putting it out themselves? That you, you do have to ask that question. That person's finances do become your business at that point. And same with the intricacies of his family and what he's given. And I do believe that he's given his family a lot. And I believe it probably has been a burden. And I believe it is something that kind of sucks that his whole family just keeps digging into his pocket whenever they need something because he's the only one that really made it. And he probably wishes that were not the case, but that doesn't mean everybody else should have to contribute. And if they should, he needs to explain why. That's what I said back in July. That's what I still feel today. So the problem is here that this is a guy who likes to live well. He likes to show the internet he's living well. In fact, he may be showing the internet he's living better than he really is. Who knows? I'm not saying he's lying, but you know how it is on the internet. You can show things that kind of imply like you're just living a very life lavish lifestyle every day when in reality it's kind of just an occasional thing. But by the way you put it out there, it makes everything look like this is a daily occurrence for you. You got to basically go one way or the other. You've got to either say, look, I'm struggling. My family's struggling. If you guys like me, can you help out my family a bit? You can take that approach Or you can take the approach of, hey, I'm a rich guy living a great life, enjoying doing these expensive things. Look how nice my house is. Look at this UFC event where I've got great seats. Look at this big party I'm having in my house on 4th of July. Look at these high rollers I'm playing. Wow, my life is great. I love everything. Look at everything I'm doing every day. Like, if you want that to be your social media persona, that's fine. But then you can't ask the public for money. Or if you want to ask the public for money... Then you've got to come forward and say, well, I don't have any money myself. I, I don't have anything left to give. So please help. But you can't have both at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. No matter how much it can be twisted, how much he's done for the family in the past, how much charity he's given in the past, uh, that is not really his GoFundMe, blah, blah, blah. It, it doesn't matter. It, it all goes out the window. It's got to be one of these two things. You can't have these both coexisting at the same time of, hey, strangers, help out my sister for 15 k and, oh, I'm getting a private jet to the Bahamas. I'm going to this expensive UFC event. I'm holding this expensive party at my house. I live in this beautiful house. Like, this stuff can't go together. There's no way you can make it go together and make it make any sense. So that's the problem here. That's why the optics are bad. The only way the optics won't be bad is if you fully explain every little detail to where this logically makes sense. And if you think it's no one's business, then you can't put out the GoFundMe. And once you put out the GoFundMe then you can't post things about private jets or it starts the controversy all over again. Now, Jeff Dime pointed out that he thought Chris Hunichen missed a big opportunity, provided that this recent cash that Chris Hunichen got for the 800K, provided that was something where he got at least some of the money. 
he could have paid back everybody who donated, which was only 6K worth. He didn't get all 15K. Or I shouldn't say he. The family didn't get all 15K. They got 6K of the 15K. So once he got that score, he should have taken whatever he got out of it personally and gone to all these people who donated and said, thank you very much. Here's your money back. I can cover this now. And then he could have put out on Twitter, hey, if you donated to GoFundMe, let me know and I will send you a refund right now. And that would have bought back a lot of the bad PR. This would have corrected a lot of the negative feelings about him. He wouldn't have to directly come out and say, hey, I messed up. I shouldn't have put that out there. Just him going and saying, okay, look, I just had this hundred, it's 800K score. And even though I'm not keeping all this money for myself, he, he didn't have to say that, even if it's true. He can say it, he cannot say it, but whatever. He could just say, I just have this score here. I would like to pay back everybody who donated to that GoFundMe. And I think that would have gone a long way. And Jeff Dime, that was his suggestion. He said it would have gone a long way. And he said that Huni really made a fool of himself by talking about this private jet when really what he should have done is after he had that 800K score, he should have uh, just paid everybody back and then people would have thought much better of him. But it got more complicated, at least on social media, when Doug Polk chose to get involved. Now, Doug Polk had not previously got involved in this subject. He had just completely ignored it. As you guys know, Doug Polk is somewhat of a provocateur. Doug Polk likes to insert himself into controversies, and sometimes he will do it with the intention of getting eyeballs onto his channel. Doug Polk does benefit from people viewing his channel, checking his channel, even thinking about him and watching him, especially because he partially owns this poker room in Texas and wants to get people down there as well. So for Doug Polk's business interests, it is true that it benefits him to insert himself into these controversies, especially if he's on the side that most people will agree with. But at the same time, he does have a right to express his opinion through his very high-profile and well-watched channel, even if it does benefit him. I mean, look, that's what I do on the show on a much smaller scale. I don't have the audience that Doug does. I never will. But I express my opinion about things. In fact, I'm doing it right now about this subject, about every subject on here. And even I've had these allegations. Oh, you're just doing this for clicks, just doing these for views. I, I get this crap all the time from people. And I explain, well, hey, this is a nonprofit site. Show me the ads here. There aren't ads. You'll notice that I run this thing at a loss. This is not something that I'm doing to make money. And I never have. So you don't know what you're talking about. Now, Doug can't say the same thing because his channel is partially for the purpose of making money. But I do believe that the channel is partially for the purpose of him having a platform to say things that are on his mind. And that he's happy that he does have a big audience to listen to him whenever he wants to comment on something. So it's got kind of a dual purpose, and I believe that. I don't think this is just someone looking for clickbait. There are YouTube creators out there who all they care about is the money. All they care about is the views and how this will impact their popularity and the amount of money they make from the views they get. There are a lot of YouTubers out there that operate that way. I'm not talking so much in poker, but I'm just saying in general on YouTube. But Doug Polk, I don't believe, is like that. I believe that his opinions really are genuine and that when he covers the subject, it is one he really is interested in. 
So this is what Doug Polk wrote. I wasn't going to weigh in on this subject because you lost your father, but this is just so far over the line. You do a 15K GoFundMe to raise money for your father's funeral. As a high-stakes player, I think this is pretty uncool because you should be able to afford it yourself. But maybe times are tough, it happens, and people donated in good faith that you couldn't afford it. Now you are tweeting about chartering a private jet to a tournament series. Talk about tone diff. Have you no shame? Next time, maybe the private jet funds can go to a service for your father instead of asking the community to take care of him for you. Disgraceful. So, okay. While I agree with some of Doug's points there, he did get some of the facts wrong. The funeral, I believe, was taking place no matter what. It wasn't like, well, my dad's not going to have a funeral unless we get this money. He was more saying here that like, he's covering the funeral, but you know, he'd really like it if people could chip in just towards the family, towards the funeral expenses, which I assume would go back to him, and towards the renovation of the home. It seems like this is more about the renovation of the home for his sister, because I guess the home was pretty dilapidated where the father lived. And it really needed work, and then the the father died, and then there's no one left to do the work. So I think that's where most of it was supposed to go. It's not like there was no funeral for his father, and now he's trying to take private jets to the Bahamas. It wasn't like that, and that's really hyperbole on the part of Doug. And I don't know if Doug really knew that or just said it to be dramatic, but that wasn't accurate. But the rest of it, I think, is pretty spot on. So Hunichen responded, and of course, wasn't very happy. He wrote, I didn't do a GoFundMe. I shared a GoFundMe my sister and mom did. Okay, that part's true. I actually didn't share it for a bit because I knew there would be some backlash, but they begged me to. I think I believe that too. The people that donated also know the situation. I have financed my entire family for two decades, put both my siblings through college. They were tired for asking for my help for everything and wanted to do a GoFundMe. I can't stop them. Also, I paid for the entire funeral myself. The GoFundMe went to helping my sister fix my father's house so her, as a single mom, could live with it with her three-year-old kid. You are a fucking idiot. You and your crew have tried bullying me for a lifetime now. You can truly go fuck yourself. Don't speak on something you have no fucking clue what you're talking about, you fucking loser. So I guess they have some kind of history also. So maybe that has to do with why Doug spoke out now. But it is true. He didn't get involved in the first controversy back in July when he could have. Now, July, of course, was much more recent as far as how long it had been since his father's death, whereas now it's been a number of months. Back in July, it had only been about one month. Now it has been about three plus more months above that. So at some point, you can't just say, well, I just lost my father. Leave me alone. You know, now it's been uh, more than four months. And while I'm sure Chris misses him a lot and it can feel like it's still recent to him, that really can't be used as a defense. Now, he's not using that as a defense. I'm just saying that Doug was probably more likely to get involved here because he felt enough time has passed to where now the topic shouldn't be off limits. So then Doug responded back to Hunichen's response. You're arguing semantics and your first point is shift taking responsibility for what you did. If you promote a charity donation to your family, do not follow it up with lavish spending on social media. That's true. Now, it's interesting because I I can see both points here. Everything Hunichin said there was probably the truth. He probably did put his siblings through college. He probably has been paying a lot of money for them over time. 
he probably didn't want to post that GoFundMe initially thinking that he would get shit for it, and indeed he did. And he probably did pay for the funeral himself, so I don't doubt that a real funeral took place here. So Doug was wrong there. And I do believe that this GoFundMe was really to fix up the house so it's in better condition for his sister. So I, I believe all that, but then Doug is right in response that it's not a huge difference whether it's his mom's GoFundMe that he's sharing or his GoFundMe. Because the bottom line is he's sharing a GoFundMe for an immediate family member that all of us don't know and asking all of us to give them money. And yet he's a high roller. So that last line of, if you promote a charity donation for your family, do not follow it up with lavish spending on social media. True. That's the whole point. That's very bad optics to do that. There's no way around that. Doug Paul continued, there's a huge difference here. We're talking about expenses for the funeral of his father. He, his post specifically mentions that. This isn't your cousin sending you a GoFundMe for a local church. This is your dad passing away and asking Twitter to foot the bill. I don't know enough to decide whether the term here should be nefarious, but I do know that he should be prioritizing taking care of his family and having some respect for the people who donate to support them. So basically, Doug is saying here that this isn't just him sharing a charity. This isn't just him sharing something he thinks is worth donating to. This is a funeral for his father and a renovation of his father's home for his sister. Immediate family members. So either take care of it yourself as a high roller who spends a lot of money or don't share that and expect others to. That's Doug's point and it's a good point. Now, some people gave Doug a hard time. A person named Vegas Misfits Stanley Cup Champions, who's at Vegas Misfits, wrote, Doug's just making an issue for clicks. Next, to follow it up with a scandal video and him and Joe Ingram will milk it for all it's worth. Chris Unichin responded, Doug's a loser has to make money from bullying people. I've made my money being an honest person. I've spent over 500k of my own money feeding and clothing homeless people. But tell me again how everyone worried about a 10k GoFundMe for my mom and sister setup. So, okay, let me stop here. He says he donated 500k of his own money feeding and clothing homeless people. Now, if he did this, that's incredibly generous. Incredibly generous. And, I, and I'm not being sarcastic here. It's incredibly generous if he did this. But this is where he should show receipts. This is, again, if you want the optics on your side, if you want the court of public opinion to come down on your side of things, you need to show this. If you can show that you've been donating 500k to feed and clothe the homeless, and now you're just asking for 15k for your immediate family, he still doesn't explain why that is needed as opposed to being from him. But yeah, let's even assume at the moment he didn't have the cash to do it. You have to show receipts. If you're going to make an extraordinary claim like that, you got to show receipts. Show the 500k you gave. I'm sure he didn't just drive down the street where homeless people were hanging out and toss cash out of his car. I, I'm sure this was done through some sort of organized fashion where there are receipts for it. So show the receipts because I think it would impress people. I'm not saying he's lying necessarily. I'm just saying that if this is true, show it. Just show it and that'll change people's opinion right away. Then people say, okay, well, wow, he spent 500K on the homeless when he was doing really well. Okay, yeah, so maybe we should chip in for his immediate family when he's not doing as well. 
that still doesn't explain the private jet thing. Like, if he's struggling this much, why hasn't he just taken an airline? <laughs> why isn't he taking Spirit Airlines down there? But, you know, it, it at least will buy some good PR there in this situation. You can't just make that claim. I mean, I could claim I spent $5 million on the homeless, but I don't think you'd believe me. And you'd be right not to believe me because it's not true. But if I said that, you would have the right to say to me, okay, if you did that, show me. Because that, that's a pretty big claim you're making. So any big claim always needs proof or you just shouldn't make the claim. Someone named Garfield's Lasagna at Minimal Degen on Twitter wrote, Everything is fair, Huny, besides the first two sentences. I mean, they're the same thing. I really do appreciate the comments you've written. It's still somewhat tone-deaf to your fans and followers to post in such unison the things of what Doug has called out. So, basically, he's saying there that, uh, yeah, while some things were not totally factual on the part of Doug, you know, he's he's kind of right here that it's, it's, it's tone-deaf to be asking about private jets when you just ask for 15 k through the GoFundMe. Here, Chris Hunishan mentions the 800 k he just hit recently. He said, it's really not. I also hit an 800 k score recently after all this. I also wasn't broke when my parents did the GoFundMe, and I paid the entire funeral myself. Doug speaking on something he has no clue on, but calling me disgraceful. He started the entire post with a false statement, which just shows how fucking dumb he is. He's always had a grudge against me, and his whole crew always tried to bully me and talk shit about me. I don't give a fuck about him or any of his little minions. Now, I don't know about any previous bad blood they had, but it's probably true. It's probably true that Hunichin has been picked on by Doug in the past. I didn't notice it, but I don't look at everything that Doug Polk writes, especially over the years, so... It's very possible Polk has sniped at him before. It's very possible that some of Polk's friends have sniped at him before, and he's tired of it. And it is true that Polk will choose people that he personally dislikes to come after more vigorously than those that he either likes or is neutral on. Now, he will come after those that he's on. He's neutral on. I've seen that plenty, too. And that's human nature. I'm not even necessarily criticizing that. And I will say it's much more fun to come on this show and criticize the wrongdoing of someone that I've always disliked than to criticize someone that I'm neutral on or even someone I somewhat like. So yeah, it's human nature to want to come out about someone you don't like and say, hey, I told you so, or try to show the public why this person sucks and now having a recent example for it. So yeah, I, I get that. And I get why Hunichen feels like Doug is just starting up with him on purpose because of a long-standing vendetta that he can't even figure out what the reason is. But that doesn't change the fact that the optics are pretty bad here. And yes, Doug sat this out the first time, and Hunichen needs to realize that as well. Doug didn't jump on this the second he posted back in July. Doug is posting about this now in November because of the private jet thing. So even if he doesn't like him and has been kind of looking for an opportunity and feels it's safer to do now since it's been several months since... Chris's dad died, and even if Doug is doing this more for the reason of just not liking Hunichen than really wanting to just comment on it morally, he's raising some good points, and that, that's the bottom line. But what I'm still not getting here, you know, Hunichen is saying he wasn't broke when he did the, had the GoFundMe, that again wasn't his, but he was sharing, and that he hit an 800k score, and he's not even saying he didn't get to keep it. So what's going on here? Like, why then is he not giving the money back to the people who donated on the GoFundMe? Like, why, why was the GoFundMe there at all if he wasn't broke then? Or close to broke? I mean, broke is relative. Maybe he wasn't broke, but he just couldn't afford to give that 15 k at that point. 
But like, what was the purpose of this GoFundMe? Why was it the public's burden to do instead of his if it was an important thing to do and if he had enough money to do it? Even if he kind of felt like he hit the limit of what he wants to give his sister. Okay, if you've hit the limit of what you want to give your sister, then that's it. Just tell her, I'm sorry, I can't do it anymore. It just doesn't make sense for someone who has money to say, well, I've given my sister enough, but maybe you guys want to now. Maybe you guys would like to help my sister. (laughs) It's, It's either you think your sister deserves the money and you're giving it to her or you're not or you can't afford it it's got to be one of those three things it can't be i can't afford it i'm just choosing not to give it to her because i'm kind of tired of giving her money but you know, maybe some of you guys can do it even who don't know her it, it just doesn't really work it's not that's not a good look that's what this whole thing is about it's just not a good look a person named marty mathis responded to doug polk and said maybe a bit tone deaf on social media but i don't think i'd call it disgraceful at the end of the day you don't choose your family and if they ask you to share something you do no Huni has been taking care of his people for as long as I can remember. He's got a big heart. So this Marty Mathis is mostly on Huni's side, except conceding that this was kind of tone deaf to say on social media that you're looking for a private jet. So then Doug Polk just posted a response with bullet points. Plays 250K, meaning a 250K buy-in event. Hosts massive party at house selling tickets. Talks about large UFC sports bets. Tweets wanting to charter a private jet. Then in the middle, retweets a 15K GoFundMe for his family. Don't agree. So this went back and forth. And I'm more on Polk's side on this one. There were people who are way too harsh on Hunichin, calling him a scammer. And all kinds of other awful names. And I can tell you from my interactions with Hunichin in DM on Twitter that I really think that he is not understanding how it looks. And I think he's getting mad because he thinks it's fine to post this stuff. He doesn't really see how this should look bad. But it does look bad. It's just bad optics. And for whatever reason, that's not registering with him. And I've tried to explain this in a very polite way because I have no problem with him. That's why I'm responding to his DMs. That's why I'm having conversations with him. I'm trying to like get it across here. Like, I'm not like what you think Doug Polk is. Like, he thinks Doug Polk's bullying him and Doug Polk's friends bully him. And that might be true. Maybe Doug Polk has been bullying him. So I'm not bullying him. I'm not someone who has an issue with him. I'm just really commenting from a neutral perspective. And this just doesn't look good. It just doesn't look good. What I said, this is what got him to send me a private message. I said, this is one of those tweets where it's wise to think before you hit send. Unless this is a troll, in which case, great job. <laughs> which did kind of cross my mind. Like, what if this is just kind of huny, like, fucking with his critics and posting this on purpose? But it turned out it wasn't. It turned out he's not trolling. He really just wanted to go to Bahamas and share a private jet with other people from Vegas and wanted to see who else was thinking of doing it. And he just didn't think about how this is going to get people angry. But I just don't understand. I just don't understand why he's not reaching into his pocket after that 800k score and giving the money back to people who donated to the GoFundMe. Because you know what? If he did that, then he could talk about the private jet and there wouldn't be nearly as much to say. But I don't even understand why the GoFundMe was shared in the first place. I, I know he can't control if it started. If his mom starts to GoFundMe, he can't say, no, mom, take that down. I understand. I understand if the mom doesn't have much money and the sister doesn't have much money and they want to GoFundMe, Fine. And I know Chris has a much bigger audience than they do on social media. But they also have to understand when he has that audience and he shares this, 
it's going to raise questions. It's going to hurt his reputation. So when you do that, you've got to give a lot more information to the public as to why you're doing that. And if you don't want to, then you just shouldn't share it. That's what I said then. That's what I say now. And this is actually worse because the defenders basically said back in July, and even I said this to some degree, they said, look, we don't know the guy's situation. He could be really struggling right now and just doesn't want to admit it. And that's why he can't give the 15K. That's why he's sharing this out here because he can't afford to do it anymore. He just has too much pride to say so. So let's read between the lines and not give him a hard time. But now he's tweeting about the private jet. Now, yes, the 800K score happened in between. Yes, that's true. But once you've put that out there, then you can't put stuff like this, at least not before you've made the GoFundMe people whole. And you know what? Even if you make the GoFundMe people whole, you do have to kind of explain something. You do have to kind of explain, well, okay, here's why I couldn't do the 15K back then. Here's why I can now, such as I just won 800K. So thank you, everybody, for helping. Here's the money back. There you go. And you know what? We had a version of this which occurred in this community, not on Poker Fraud Alert, because this drive occurred on the Donk Down site that kind of preceded Poker Fraud Alert. I was a part owner of that site, as most of you know. It's a defunct site now. But uh, there is a member there named Cletus, an older guy who wanted to get a scooter to get around, and he just couldn't afford one. And so he had no transportation. And Cletus kind of became a uh, beloved member of the community. And there was a drive on Donkdown to raise some money for the scooter, which wasn't even that expensive. I think it was like $1,200 or something. So it wasn't like a raising money for a car. So people contributed to it, including me. I contributed $100 to it. And Cletus got his scooter. And he was grateful and thanked everybody for the money. And then guess what happened? I think it was the following year, but sometime not that long after, Cletus started doing better. And he went on a mission to repay everybody that had donated. So he came over to me at the World Series of Poker. He found me there in the hallway, and he handed me a $100 bill. And I said, no, 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 Cletus, this wasn't uh, a loan here. This was just a donation. I donated this $100 to you. And he kept saying that he insists I take the $100 bill. Because he does not want to be a long-term burden for anybody. He doesn't want to be a recipient of permanent charity. That this was something that he saw as a loan, even if others didn't. And that it's really important to him that everybody who was nice enough to help out gets their money back now because now he can afford it. So he's glad they gave it to him then so he could use the scooter then. And he still has the scooter, but that he wanted to give everybody the money back at this point, even though they weren't donating with that expectation. So I said, okay, I I could tell it was very important to him that I took the money back. It wasn't because I thought, oh, sweet, a hundred dollars back. I thought I'd never see. I understood. I I tried not to give it to him, but it was very important to him that I took it back. And in fact, after I took it back, he started asking me about certain other people on the forum that he couldn't find where I could find them, how he'd get a hold of them to give them back the $100. Some of them he found around Vegas, but some of them didn't live in Vegas. So it was very important for him to track down every single donor and give them back their money. And he was asking me how I could help him contact these people. 
this was Cletus, who, you know, he didn't score 800K in a tournament. I don't know what money he got, but, you know, it, it probably wasn't big money. It was probably enough to just uh, still be able to live whatever lifestyle he had, which wasn't a very high roller lifestyle by any means. This was a guy who was just, uh, you know, getting by here, but he must have had, you know, a little extra money and said, okay, well, now I have some breathing room. I'm, I'm going to pay these people back who got the scooter, which none of them did this as a loan. But he did it because he didn't want to feel like people were taking care of him. But more, they were just kind of loaning him during a hard time, even though it wasn't sold as a loan. So this could be the same thing. Like, why doesn't Hyundai just go to these people and say, okay, everybody gets their money back? I got the 800K score, everybody gets their money back. I just don't get it. So I'm telling you, Chris Hunichin, if you listen to this, I have nothing against you. I'm not like Polk. I'm not taking pleasure in this segment. I'm not taking pleasure in, in anything critical I'm saying. And I, I promise you that. I'm, I'm always very sincere about this stuff. If I didn't like you, I'd say so. I, I talk about plenty of people on this show that I don't like, and I state I don't like them. But I have no problem with you. I've never had a problem with you. I still don't have a problem with you. I'm just saying the optics are very bad. They're very bad. So you, you can't talk about a luxurious lifestyle or, or taking private jets or anything that the average person doesn't do as long as that GoFundMe is still out there and everybody who donated hasn't been paid back, even if they weren't expecting to get paid back, just like the Cletus story I just told. Even if they weren't expecting to get paid back, even if it's seen as a donation, at the very least, you've got to offer to everybody who donated that you're going to give it back and explain why back then you were helping them ask for the money instead of giving it yourself to your mom or your sister. Otherwise, you just can't ever tweet again about this type of stuff without getting a lot of people giving you a hard time. That's a fact. And I'm not going to be one of them. I'm not going to be following you around and go, ah, look at Huni again talking about uh, something that looks expensive. I'm not going to do that. I, I only commented when I saw all the backlash to this. Because to me, the backlash was obvious. Now, of course, being poker Twitter, there's yet another angle that spawned from this. There's always <laughs> a ripple effect through poker Twitter. Sometimes one controversy will birth another or scratch off an old wound between other third parties. And that's exactly what happened here. So Charlie Carroll, who is definitely no fan of Doug Polk, and he was kind of the driving force regarding a semi-cancellation of Doug Polk back in May, he saw an opportunity here. And you have to understand with Charlie Carroll, he's an intelligent guy, He's often very calculated in his behavior. And when he sees an opening to push some kind of narrative, he will. So Charlie felt picked on by Doug Polk over the years. Doug Polk uh, made fun of him over various, various things that Charlie wrote. And Charlie kind of just took it. You know, he responded, but he just knew that uh, he wasn't winning these arguments that Doug Polk was pretty good at picking his spots to criticize and Charlie kind of came on the wrong end of most of these and and he resented it but there wasn't much he could do at the time and then in May he found an opportunity to jump on Doug Polk when there started to be some criticism on how Doug Polk would give people a hard time 
either on Poker Twitter or on his channel, and that basically the argument at the time, and we've talked about this before, was Doug Polk has this gigantic following, and that anyone that he wants to target, he can basically ruin, and that he's been using this platform to bully people in poker for a long time, and that there's been a lot of people afraid to speak out against Doug Polk for fear that they'll be the next target. And... You know, there's two sides to this. You can say, well, this isn't Doug Polk's fault that he's popular and have a lot of has a lot of people who watch him. I mean, that's what you want when you start a YouTube channel. That's what you want when you're trying to be some kind of influencer on social media. So when you've been successful at it, as Doug Polk has, you can't really apologize that when you express an opinion about someone that a lot of people see it. So while I've seen Doug Polk definitely use the platform to ridicule those he dislikes... That, that's just kind of par for the course when you have a platform like that. So it is true that Doug Polk should think before he does something like this and make someone really look bad through his channel. He should think, well, does this person really deserve it? If it's like an outright scammer, of course they deserve it. If it's some sort of awful person who's done something really bad, you know, cheating, whatever it might be, that definitely deserves massive criticism and ridicule in poker, then yeah, sure, uh, that's a no-brainer. If it's just kind of a personal beef, you know, then you gotta gotta think, okay, maybe I shouldn't be doing this because it's gonna really have a devastating effect on this person, and and maybe my issue with them isn't severe enough to warrant going after them this badly. But then you could say, look at the other side here, that he's got a platform, and if he just wants to speak and give his opinion and speak his mind, why shouldn't he? If everybody with a smaller platform does it, why can't he do it with a big platform? So I understand both sides of this. And I, I don't think Doug Polk's a bad guy. I think he can be a little vindictive sometimes, but I don't think he's a bad guy. And I think what he says on his channel is usually stuff he really believes, and, and he tends to usually take a, a pretty reasonable position. So he's definitely not one without fault, but I felt a lot of the cancellation aimed at him back in May was unfair. And I felt it was overblown and overdone. And everybody pretty much piled on. If you remember, uh, Berkey piled on, and uh, Charlie Carroll really piled on. And a lot, a lot of people just showed up. Phil Galfon piled on. People showed up who felt criticized by Doug Polk at one point. Like, okay, finally, he's weakened. Let's all kick him now. And boy, did they kick hard. But no one kicked harder in that spot than Charlie Carroll. He was really, really laying it on thick. And it was kind of a weird thing that Charlie Carroll at the time was giving Polk a hard time for. Charlie likes to tweet a lot of provocative stuff. He likes to tweet kind of offbeat, weird, provocative things that are designed to really get you kind of uncomfortable and sometimes even outraged from seeing his point of view. Yeah, that's Charlie's right to do. He can tweet whatever the hell he wants. He can tweet whatever opinions he wants. But you can't put out a lot of provocative, controversial opinions and then get mad when there's a backlash, when there's criticism, when there's people saying rude and nasty things. And I know this. I will sometimes tweet out material which I know will be controversy, or which I know will be controversial. And sure enough, I will sometimes get backlash and criticism and rude and nasty things said about me, many of which aren't even true. And I know that when I tweet that stuff out. So Charlie does this all the time. So he should just be very aware that's the way Twitter works. 
And if he doesn't like it, then don't tweet out these things which are intentionally designed to get a certain subset of people angry and uncomfortable. So one of the things Charlie wrote some years ago was that he can empathize with pedophiles and that something along the lines of that uh, we should seek to understand them and see if we can change them rather than just automatically condemning them. So Doug jumped on this and was painting him as a supporter of pedophiles or maybe even that he was a pedophile himself. So understandably, Charlie was very angry and hurt about this. And apparently, and Charlie hadn't told anyone this at this time, Charlie had been molested himself as a child, which, you know, is very tragic, obviously, and no child deserves that. And that's horrible. But, you know, no one knew about that until well afterwards, until years later, when the cancellation of Doug Polk was being attempted. But Charlie was giving Doug such a hard time about this, and he got on Twitter spaces, and he got all emotional and talking about how this just really hurt him and brought back all the old wounds that he had from being molested as a child, and how could he be accused of being something that he absolutely hates that was so harmful to him, and that Doug just does this because he enjoys being a jerk and enjoys being a bully and enjoys humiliating people, and it was very effective. All of a sudden, Doug Polk was not on the winning side of his internet beefs. He, he was really getting clobbered here by most people. And, and most of the people watching this whole thing were on the side at the time of canceling Doug. Now, there were some people who were defending Doug, but there were a lot of people really coming after Doug and saying what an awful person he was, and specifically really giving Doug a hard time about criticizing Charlie's comments about the pedophiles. And I thought to myself, what? Like, Charlie said something that is very, very controversial. It is very, very controversial to say that we need to empathize with what pedophiles are dealing with or why they might be doing it, or what their thought process is, and, and maybe if we can understand them, we can change them. That's a very controversial statement, because most people feel that pedophiles are just sick and selfish people, and they just need to be put in prison and lock the door and throw away the key. And you don't have to worry about understanding them or changing them, that every one of them should know that they shouldn't be doing this. No matter what their history, no matter what their mental disorder, it's just something that every adult should know not to do. It should just be very obvious to every single adult that you don't molest little kids. You shouldn't have to learn that. It doesn't matter what your disorder is. So I agree with Doug on this, that I don't believe that's the proper approach with pedophiles. You can also try to do some kind of, I don't know, outreach or something to potential pedophiles and say, hey, if you're thinking of doing this, go to counseling and learn why this is something you should absolutely never do. If you're considering going this route, and maybe that'll save some kids from being molested, I have no problem with that. But I agree with Doug that you can't look at pedophiles and say, oh, these are human beings, we need to understand them. Nope. Not really. <laughs> That's, you just should know not to do it. I don't care what the urges are. You just got to say, I'm not going to do it. That's how I feel about you know that situation. And I think a lot of people felt that. And in fact, when Doug brought this out, while he did do it in a very critical and, shall I say, hateful fashion, you can understand it. 
because Charlie made a very provocative comment and Doug already didn't like him. So that's the nature of Twitter. That's what's going to happen. You you say something like that and there's people who already don't like you, they're going to put out a very strong and nasty response to it. That's the way Twitter works. So you can't call that bullying. That's not bullying what Doug did there. Doug took a comment that Charlie made that was highly controversial and most people don't agree with and used this against Charlie. And that's the way social media works. And if you don't like it, then you don't make controversial comments like that. It's that simple. It's the ultimate application of if you can't take the heat, stay out of the kitchen. So anyway, that's some background there. This is all stuff that I'm talking about from you know years ago all the way through May of this year. But Charlie wasn't done with Doug. Doug made an apology to Charlie to try to stave off some of the cancellation sentiment that was growing on Twitter. But Charlie probably maintained a lot of resentment about it and just felt that uh, Doug had been picking on him for years and Doug was trying to really make him look bad for years and Doug was reveling in his misery, which probably was somewhat true. And he probably still had a lot of resentment. So Charlie saw another opportunity to go after Doug. And that was in this Hunachan thing, because Charlie probably read and saw that a number of people didn't agree with Doug. A lot of people did agree with Doug, but there were some who didn't. So on that same day, November 4th, Charlie Carroll responded and quote tweeted Doug Polk, who was criticizing Hunachan, and said, yet again, Doug Polk distorts facts to suit a narrative and uses it to attack someone. Doug, I told everyone to stop when you were getting piled on for being a bully. I'm a big believer in giving people paths to redemption. Now you're doing it again, using your consistently awful ethical judgment to try and morally police people and painting a false narrative that ends up having hundreds of people attack a person whose father recently died, he puts in emphasizing asterisks. Get your own house in order before trying to morally police the world. So look at that tweet. Charlie's basically saying, hey, I called off the dogs. You were getting pounded back in May, and I gave you a path to redemption, Doug. And now look what you're doing. You're doing it all over again, Doug. You're bullying again. Boy, I'm sorry that I gave you a path to redemption. I always do it. I'm a very forgiving guy. But uh, look look what you're doing here. I told everybody to stop, and now look what you're doing. You're making me very, very disappointed, Doug says Charlie Carroll. He's saying that he's needing to get his own house in order. I don't know what he's talking about. Like, what does he have to get in order before trying to morally police the world? So yeah, a lot of resentment still there. And this is why sometimes it's a mistake to apologize when you don't really mean the apology. And when Doug put out the apology, this really looked to me like he didn't mean it, but he really was just trying to get a lot of people off his back. He's trying to diffuse the situation. And this is the problem is you give strength to those that don't like you. If the one you're apologizing to really hates you, then they will sometimes use this apology and throw it in your face later. And that's what's happening here. Basically, Charlie is saying, hey, Doug, you know, I saved you from just complete annihilation from the internet back in May. And now look what you're doing again, Doug. You haven't learned your lesson, Doug. Maybe it's time I teach you again, is what Charlie's trying to say. 
So some people defended Doug in response to Charlie Carroll. Lucas Fredrickson wrote, it's not weird to start a GoFundMe and then fly private in the same year. And then Charlie Carroll says he didn't start the GoFundMe, but lies about the circumstances around someone's dead dad don't matter if it gives Doug Polk the sense of moral superiority. So I see what Charlie's saying here, that Doug didn't accurately portray the situation and that Doug was making it sound like that Chris Hunichin didn't give his father a proper burial and now is using the money to go fly private jets around the country. And that's not what's happening here. You know, his dad did get a proper burial. And I don't know if Doug knew that or maybe he was just confused or maybe he was purposely saying that because it sounded more provocative. I don't know. But the base point behind what Doug was saying was valid. Even if the motivation was because he didn't like Hunichin already. The base point behind the whole thing was valid, even if he had some of the details wrong. Someone else wrote, Charlie, you told us that you stopped using drugs, but after this post, I'm pretty sure you're doing it again. (laughs) Someone named Smitty wrote, this anti-Polk narrative is tired. Doug made a point. Don't think it's that far off. Seems like he was wrong, so be it. People can make up their own mind with all the facts on the platform. But then someone on the side of Hunichin slash Charlie said, shame he's doubling down after Chris gave a pretty comprehensive explanation. Another person wrote, Doug is right 100%. Another person criticizing Doug wrote, yep, toxicity and projections, hard pattern to crack, unless unless he's what he really wants, clickbait attention. Someone said they wanted to see a heads-up match between Charlie Carroll and Doug Polk. That would be good. They're both good players. You know, Polk is better heads up than Charlie, but they're both good no-limit players. This would be an interesting match to see, especially given the very different personalities they have and the hatred they have for each other. Another person named Starboy said, dude, stop ragging on Doug, man. It's getting really stale. I agree with Starboy. It is getting stale. Another person named Daniel Fisher wrote, I know you like to defend everyone and everything, but no Chris's position isn't really defensible here through a moral, ethical, or logical lens. Also using a bit of misdirection, this isn't about Doug. This was an easy W for Dougie boy. Yeah, Daniel Fisher raises a good point. It was an easy W for Dougie boy. And that might also be why Doug got involved at this point, because the private jet thing just really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, so... Doug probably felt, hey, well, I can say something now (laughs) because it's been a while since the father passed away and a lot of people are going to agree with me here. So perfect opportunity. And Doug took it. I can believe that. A person named Jay Sue said, Chris didn't refute anything Doug said. So that fact's distorted? Doesn't matter if mom and sister started the GoFundMe. Obviously, Chris was aware as he shared it. He bragged about 800K score and 500K on homeless and taking a private jet, but no funds to fix the house? Yeah, see, these things have to just be put out there to where people understand it from Hunichin's side. But yeah, I I don't want to beat this to death, but as you see that Charlie Carroll jumped on this so, so he could try to batter Doug Polk a bit more six months later. I knew that even though Charlie Carroll accepted Doug Polk's apology, that he still quietly hated him. And that Doug Polk's apology probably wasn't very sincere. This is different than the longtime feud between Doug Polk and Daniel Negranu, which 
ended actually after their heads up match where Doug Polk won like $1.2 million off Negreanu. And then after that, they were friendly. Like they're not close friends, but the uh, ground even went on Doug Polk's show and they will interact now civilly on Twitter. Like the, the whole days of them fighting seems to be over. So it was interesting that that really seemed to bridge whatever issues they had. But that hasn't happened, and I don't think it will happen with Charlie and Doug. That seems to be some pretty deep hatred. So Charlie will jump on this whenever he thinks there's an opportunity to do so. So the funny thing is these two aren't that different in that way. And that if Doug doesn't like someone, and then an opportunity comes to jump on something they've done and make them look even worse, he will tend to take it. And Charlie Carroll, well, that's what he's doing too. So maybe, Charlie, you need to look in the mirror and say, ah, might I be seeing Doug Polk's face and Fohawk back in the mirror when I look at my own mirror? Might I be somewhat the same as him, even though we're so different? Because in that way, Charlie, you are. You both have a bit of a vindictive streak. And you both have a penchant for posting things that you know will be controversial. I tend to agree with Doug a lot more than I do Charlie, by the way. Let me read you one more thing before I move on here. Daniel Negreanu responded to Doug Polk. I was mentioning that they now communicate in a civil fashion. And here's what Negreanu wrote, which was mostly in defense of Hunichen. He wrote, I'm going to chime in for a different perspective. I have friends and family who often ask me for help, not always money, and in some cases they're very uncomfortable taking any money from me. Sometimes they'll ask not for me to pay for something, but to share their initiative with my following. Sometimes it's as little as $2,500 that I could easily pay for myself, but they don't want me to. I just also spent 15 k on a golf cart. I understand why it looks bad to be a rich guy saying, hey, go help my family and give the money, followed up by getting a private jet, but that's not actually nefarious. If my kid wanted to raise 2500 for a charity and felt good about doing it, me just paying for it takes away from that joy to some degree. Seems pretty clear his family wanted to take ownership of some part of it, similar to when I take people to dinner and they insist on covering the tip, etc. After a deeper look, it's pretty obvious that's what occurred here. If I just read your post on it without context, I would have a pretty shitty opinion on it, but after his explanation, I totally get it. Okay, so I get what Daniel is saying here. And he's trying to be empathetic here. He's trying to think about it from Hunichin's perspective. And I can appreciate that. The part where I don't agree is where he's talking about how it's pretty clear that Hunichin's family wanted to take ownership of some part of getting this money. Similar to how somebody who's asking Daniel to share their charity doesn't just want Daniel to cut a check for them, but that this person would actually like to be the one facilitating the money being raised themselves, that they just don't want it to be seen like uh, Daniel Negreanu just took care of the whole thing with his deep pocketbook. So I understand that part, but we've never heard anything that Hunichin's family really wanted the ownership of raising the money. That, that was never the way it was being sold. It was being sold like, hey, my sister is a single mom with a four-year-old, and she's living in a dilapidated house that needs 15K of work. So can the public please help 
so my sister doesn't have to live in a dilapidated house anymore. That's it. it. The goal was have his sister and his sister's son not continue to have to live in a dilapidated house, but that the repairs it needs could be completed. That seemed to be what was the point of this whole thing. Not about someone feeling good that they've raised the money. So I don't think Chris's mom really cares that she gets the credit for raising the money. You know how moms are. They just want the problem solved. They just want their kids to be happy. They just want their kids to be safe and their kids in a good circumstance. They don't care where the money comes from. You think Chris Unichin's mom wants to put the feather in her cap that she's the one who got the money raised for the sister? No, she just wants the sister to be living in a good circumstance. I doubt she cares who gets the credit for it as long as it just gets done because she's the mom and she cares about her daughter. So I don't believe this is anywhere equivalent to someone who is trying to raise money for charity and would like the satisfaction of a charity drive that's successful rather than rather than this one particular rich guy just covering the whole thing. So I don't agree with that. I do believe there's nothing nefarious here. I just think it's very tone deaf. That's all. Like I, I get these messages from Hunichin, and I, I don't think he's like trying to manipulate me or lie to me. I just think he just isn't seeing it the way everybody else is. And sometimes when you don't see it the way everybody else is seeing it, you do have to take a step back and ask yourself, why don't I see it the way everybody else is seeing it? Might the problem be with my own perception? Might I have to adjust my views of the way certain things are to where maybe in the future I will do things differently? Because it seems like most people don't agree that my perspective is correct. Now, just because you're in the minority with your particular perspective doesn't mean you're wrong. But a lot of times when it comes to something like with optics, a lot of times when the vast majority is telling you that this doesn't look good, they're right. A lot of times when the vast majority is telling you that such and such thing that you're saying is bad form, they're correct. Once in a while, no. Once in a while, time will pass and you'll be proven right. And you'll be able to say, I told you so, I was right all along. But usually not. Usually when you have a massive number of people telling you, hey, you're kind of out of line here. The optics are very bad here. You should do some soul searching and say, hmm, you know what? I understand that. And I think he does understand it because he said he didn't want to share this GoFundMe initially because he was afraid this backlash would occur. So he needs to ask himself, why is it occurring? And with that said, we shall move on. I want to give you an update on Josephine Ragland, the woman who killed Bart Hansen's dog. She is a scammer. She's probably a career scammer. She definitely is a repeated scammer, at the very least. And unfortunately, not only did Bart Hansen get scammed, but his dog was killed as part of the scam, as we covered on our last episode. So, where I last left this off, Bart was going all across the media, and I'm talking about the mainstream media, not the poker media, and appearing everywhere that would have him on to expose this awful woman, Josephine Ragland, R-A-G-L-A-N-D, for both scamming him and killing his dog. 
And very simply put, this is an awful woman whose particular scam was pretending to be a dog trainer. And then what she would really do is take the dogs, throw them in a crate, not give them enough food or water, not take care of them, and just run off to the casino with the money that she was paid. So not only was there no training actually done, so that's where the scam took place, but then these dogs were also really, really tortured because they were left malnourished. They were left in a crate all day. And in at least two cases, the dogs died. And unfortunately, one of them was Bart's. So this is a woman who just abuses animals via extreme neglect in order to get money for fake training she's never giving just so she can go to the casino and chunk it all off. And it's a coincidence that this had a gambling tie to it, even though Bart Hansen has been part of the gambling industry for two decades. It's a coincidence that she happens to be part of it, too. It's not known if she was aware of who she was before she took the job. I'm sure she's very sorry at this point that she tried to scam him because he's the one who has given her the most come up in so far. And now the entire house of cards is crashing down on her. And hopefully it's going to crash down a lot harder because she deserves it. So we covered this on the last show. It's a very sad story. And Bart lost his uh, three-year-old bulldog named Charlie. Uh, Josephine Ragland is 100% guilty. In fact, he shared the police report publicly, which I posted on Poker Fraud Alert in the thread on the Flying Stupidity Forum about this subject. And you can go take a look at it yourself. It's a very interesting police report, which basically shows that, first of all, she was constantly lying her ass off to the police and ultimately admitted that she was lying. And she got her mom involved in a lot of this. The mom is very guilty, too. The mom was the one whose house it was where she was staying and crating these dogs while pretending to be training them. The mom was very aware of what she was doing. And after the fact, when Bart's dog died due to Josephine's abuse and extreme neglect, the mom was helping cover the whole thing up. And the mom continued to have no problem with her leaving all those crated dogs there in those conditions. It's not even like a mom. the mom put the stop to it at that point. The mom let it continue, and there were four other dogs rescued there that hadn't yet died that were still in the house. And her mom even admitted that, quote, they're still alive when she was asked by the police the condition of the dogs. That was her answer. Well, they're still alive. So she couldn't even say they're in good condition because they weren't. So she was very aware dogs were being abused in her house by her daughter, and she didn't stop it. And while you have limited control of your adult children, if they're just going to do what they want and you don't approve of it, when they're living in your house and they're using your house to run a dog training scam where they're torturing dogs, you can definitely say, no, this is not happening here. You're not doing this. You're not going to create these dogs here. You're not going to scam these poor people. You're not going to torture these dogs. It's not going to happen in my house, ever. You, you, you can and should say that as a parent. And if you allow this to occur, so your daughter can feed her gambling addiction, and then when she gets in trouble, attempt to lie to the police, which her mom did, which I'll get to in a second, then her mom's guilty too. And while I understand a mom wanting to protect the daughter, this goes beyond just a mom trying to cover up a kid's crime because they don't want the kid to go to jail. Uh, The mom was very aware of this whole thing the whole way it was happening, and it was in the mom's house. And the mom just blatantly lied to police about the whole thing. In fact, the police report showed that 
for a while the story was that Charlie was buried in their backyard, but that they had a feeling Charlie was gone because they believed that animals had uh, disturbed the shallow grave and dug up Charlie and dragged him away somewhere. (laughs) And they couldn't say why they knew that happened. They just like, well, no, this is what we think happened. We don't think he's there anymore. So they dug a hole in the backyard to pretend that Charlie had been there. This is once the police were investigating. They didn't do this as soon as Charlie died. They just, you know, Josephine just dumped Charlie on the side of the road somewhere, who was eventually found. But before Charlie was found, they claimed that he was buried in the backyard and he had just collapsed and they didn't know what to do and panicked. And they actually dug a hole in the backyard and the mom claimed that her husband, which is Josephine's stepfather, had, had dug the hole and, and buried the dog there. And the dog was there and that uh, the dog probably isn't there anymore because there's a lot of animals there that like to you know, dig holes and probably disturbed it and took the body away. That was like right there in the police report. So they came down and they examined the hole. The law enforcement examined the hole and did a lot of investigation and determined that there was never any dog in there. That there was no sign of any animal ever having been in that hole. It just looked like a hole that was dug after the fact to try to lie to the police. And Josephine eventually admitted that, yeah, the, the dog was never in that hole. <laughs> so they, the, the whole thing was just a complete lie. and She's admitted it was a complete lie. So that's, that's part of the charges she's facing there. That's the uh, witness intimidation part of the charges she is facing. And I mentioned that on the last uh, show we did. But this woman lied the entire way. And her mom lied the entire way about this entire thing to the police. It's one thing to lie to Bart, which is bad enough, but lie to the police. In fact, she even lied about her name for a while. She didn't want to give the police her name. It's just lie, 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 one after another, no remorse. And then when the police would take apart these lies and it was clear that these things just could not be true, it was impossible for these stories to be true, eventually they got to the truth only after disproving everything else. So I mentioned that she was scheduled to be in court. It's a very weird way they were doing this in Massachusetts. They didn't arrest her. They did some weird thing where they gave her a criminal complaint and she was compelled to f- answer the, co- the criminal complaint in court on a day in October, but was not officially arrested, which is weird because it was a felony. So she was charged with larceny, and with witness intimidation. And again, the witness intimidation was basically about lying to the police. So they have these you know, fairly serious charges against her. It's not like this was for shoplifting or something. I mean, this is a pretty serious matter here. And they don't arrest her. They just give her this criminal complaint and say, hey, be in court on this day. So as of the last show, I wasn't sure if the court date had taken place yet. And if it had, I didn't know the results of it. And I said I'd ask Bart about it. Anyway, I asked Bart, and he said it hadn't taken place yet, but it was just about to. So it has since taken place, and local media there in Boston actually was there at the trial. And you get to see a pretty clear picture of what Josephine Raglan looks like today. You get to see her in court. And they actually zoomed in on her at one point. You don't get to see the whole trial, but you get to see the in the news report what she looked like there in court and she just had this like defiant like remorseless look on her face almost like she was being bothered to have to be there 
almost like, oh my God, why do I have to deal with this? Oh my God, what's the big deal? That was the look on her face. It it wasn't the look of someone who knew they screwed up, who knew they did a bad thing, who felt guilty. It really had this defiant, like, this really sucks that I was caught for this. What's the big deal? Sort of look on her face. Just very, very off-putting body language. You just hate her even more when, when you see this in the video. And then when she walked out of court, the TV station attempted to ask her to comment or her lawyer to comment, and her lawyer said that they have no comment, and they would not say anything. So what ended up happening in court was that she was told of the charges. She is pleading not guilty, and she was released, so she's still not in jail. She hasn't spent one moment in jail, which is horrible. She, sh- she should be spending time in jail, at least have to post a big bond, but she didn't have to post any bond. She did have to surrender her passport, so she can't leave the country, and she was ordered to not have any contact with Bart or his family, and also ordered not to post anything about animals on social media basically aimed at her not uh, restarting the business in the meantime. They didn't specifically mention the business. They just said she can't post anything about animals on social media as a condition of her being released without any bond. So she agreed to that, and she's currently released. Now, I think this is very stupid because she doesn't have an ankle bracelet or anything. She could just run off. She can't leave the country, but she could just run off. And there's not going to be like a massive nationwide manhunt for her if she does. I mean, it helps with getting all this publicity. And maybe she would fear that there's enough publicity and there would be even more if she ran off to where people would recognize her. But, you know, what if she finds someone to help her live under the radar? You know, find some dude and sweet sweet talks him. I mean, she's a young woman. She's uh, late 20s. So... Yeah, what if she finds some dude and sweet talks him into basically hiding her? She'll be very hard to find if she stays out of sight. So you don't need to leave the country to hide. So I think it's a big mistake. I think she should have been required to post uh, a hefty bond, which would guarantee her appearance. That's the whole point of these bonds. Otherwise, people can run off. Now, she may think that there's no point to run because there's a decent chance she won't get any actual prison time, which is sad, but it's possible. Unfortunately, the most privileged segment of the population when it comes to avoiding criminal punishment is the white female demographic, the young white female demographic. So if you're ever accused of a crime, the absolute best thing to be is a young white female way better than a male of any race or any social class, better than an older female, better than a minority female, a young white female does the best in criminal court by far. They consistently get undersentenced. And it's something along the lines that people have been kind of conditioned to see young white females as kind of like damsels in distress even when they're not and people just have a harder time picturing them being evil criminals whereas it's 
easy to picture a dude being an evil criminal, no matter what his background is. It doesn't matter if he's rich, poor, white, black. You can always look at a dude and say, oh, yeah, this is a bad guy. This guy's a criminal. This guy's evil. You can basically say that very easily about a dude. That's just about everybody can do that. But with young white women, a lot of people have a hard time looking at them and, and seeing a criminal. It just doesn't register in a lot of people's minds. So this ends up translating to courtroom leniency in a criminal setting. And it sucks that it's, it's this way. It really shouldn't be. Everybody really should be getting equal treatment in court. There should not be any kind of pre- prejudice. It shouldn't be about your race or your gender or your sexual preference or your age. None of that. Everybody should be judged strictly on the evidence and their history and the testimony. It, it really should be only those factors. It should never be where you want to be lenient on someone because uh, there are a certain race and gender and age, but uh, definitely young white females do far better in criminal court. So for that reason, unfortunately, I'm worried that she will get some kind of probation and that'll be that. I'm hoping that's not the case, but I'm a little worried that may be the case here, especially given that she has not spent one moment in jail yet. Now, it is good from the standpoint of prosecuting her that she has done this multiple times. As I mentioned on the last show, not only did she do this to Bart, not only did she do this to the four other dog owners who had dogs there that were taken from her mom's home, but she also did the same thing in Northern California earlier this year and late last year. Apparently, 18 owners of dogs that she had watched and supposedly trained, but didn't really train, in the Bay Area were giving their accounts about what had happened to their dogs. And in most cases, there were signs that the dogs had been abused. The dogs would come home with a different personality and not in a better way, like in a worse way, where they'd be aggressive, or they'd be apprehensive, or they would just be on edge, or they have lost a lot of weight, or they'd look dirty, or they'd smell of urine and feces. Or in the worst of all the cases, the dog died. So there was a case where a German shepherd was given to her to train, and then they actually tried to return a different dog to this family that didn't even look that much like the dog. I, I saw in one of the reports the replacement dog. It didn't even look that much like the first dog. I don't even know why they thought they could pull this off. But uh, she and her boyfriend supposedly were watching this dog. The boyfriend actually amazingly took credit for letting the dog get away and die, which is pretty amazing that uh, this guy was willing to do this for her. I don't know if she's still with him. This is in California. But at the time, they chose not to prosecute her, even though I think they could have given all the different dog owners that came forward that she had been abusing their dogs. So between all these different owners, plus this dog dying and then being replaced with another dog and told it's the same dog, that definitely should have risen to the level where she should be prosecuted, at the very least for fraud. But she wasn't, and she left the state partially, I'm guessing, so there would be less of a chance they would come after her. So she left the state and started the scam all over again in Massachusetts and Connecticut. And that's unfortunately how Bart got victimized later on. So sadly had the San Jose Police Department done their job when they should have last year, then Bart's dog would still be alive. But she's definitely shown a repeated pattern doing this. As I said, there were 18 dog owners that 
had different stories about what happened to their dogs under her care back in uh, early 2023 and late 2022. And then a bunch in Massachusetts and Connecticut, including the five that had been in her house in September, four of which were rescued. Unfortunately, the fifth one being Charlie was dead. So really, really awful woman who didn't just make a one-off mistake. This is someone who serially did this and had such a dark and cold heart that she didn't mind doing this to these dogs, just throwing them in a crate, not coming back sometimes for days while they didn't have enough food or water and they didn't get to go out for walks or anything. They're just in this crate. Can you imagine? And just doing this to one dog after another. I mean, it's torture. She's torturing one dog after another so she can get money to go gamble. With no remorse. You'd think after the German Shepherd thing, that would be a wake-up call. You'd think after that, she'd say, okay, well, one of these damn dogs died here that I was abusing. Okay, you know what? I'm going to stop abusing dogs here for, for money. I, I think I'm going to stop this. But no, she, she, she just moves to another state and starts up all over again. This is a sick person. And Bart said this. He said this is a sick, sick individual. And it is. Because to keep doing this over and over, this isn't someone with a gambling problem who neglected one dog they were watching and then the dog died and they felt awful about it and said, well, it's too late. I feel terrible, but there's nothing I can do. I've learned my lesson here. This is someone doing it again and again and again and again. And all they care about is getting that money that they're scamming. So it's a combination of a scammer and an animal abuser. But she must have something just missing. She must be a sociopath. She, there must be something missing in her makeup to where she can do that to these dogs and not care. How can you just torture animals like this? As part of your scam. It's much worse than a regular scam. Usually a regular scam is just financial. Here this is financial plus torturing animals. It's crazy. So I, I really wish that she would get a very long sentence. It, it won't be long enough whatever she gets. It won't be close to long enough. But here, I'll play you some of these uh, news reports regarding her court appearance. And you can get an idea of what's going on there. Props to Bart for really staying on this one. He's the one who has brought all this to the attention of media. He is the one who just jumped on this situation right away and got the right people involved to investigate it. He got lucky in some ways that he got an animal control officer who was very, very interested in the situation and did a lot of work and that his small-town police department was very interested and did a lot of work. So that's all good. And that was out of his control. It was good that he ran into that. He's very unlucky, of course, that this happened to his dog, but I'm saying that after the fact, he had some luck in who he ran into to help investigate this. But he's put a lot of time and energy into getting this into the media, into spreading the word about this, into trying to get her prosecuted, not just where he lives in Massachusetts, but also in California and also in Connecticut. And in Connecticut is the place they can bring the animal abuse charges because that's where the dogs were actually abused. But I have one more piece of news before I play you those reports. Because in addition to be ch being charged in Massachusetts, which I told you about in October, she's also now being charged in California. So that's good. Now they could charge her there with the animal abuse, but for whatever reason they're not. But they are charging her with felonies in California related to the scamming. 
And I, th- there is a second charge which is somewhat related to animal abuse, but it's not quite a strict cruelty to animals charge, which he really needs to face. But Bart's working on getting that done in Connecticut. So he's been very aggressive with this, and it's been paying off. She messed with the wrong person here. She messed with the wrong person's dog. And fortunately, Bart has been able to spread the word about her. And now she's going to have a very hard time doing this in the future just because of the publicity that has been brought. And uh, the fact that she'll finally be facing criminal charges over this. So I'm going to play you some of these updates on the story here. Well, a judge has ordered a Connecticut dog trainer accused of scamming a North Reading family to stay away from all animals other than her own. So this morning, Josephine Raglan appeared in court on charges of larceny and witness intimidation. It was in August when the Hansen family hired Raglan to train Charlie. That's their Frenchie. When it was time to return the dog, she said Charlie jumped out of her car window. Well, the family was suspicious and went to police. A necropsy determined the dog was emaciated and died from heat stroke just days into Raglan's care. Now, she's facing similar accusations in several other states. This is not an isolated incident. I, I think this is kind of a sick, sick individual. I don't know if it's entirely for financial gain or what, but I, I'm hoping that the justice, criminal justice here in Connecticut and California takes this um, very seriously, which it looks like they, that they do. The judge released Raglan without setting bail, but she has to surrender her passport and can't make any references to animals on social media. So that was the report from CBS Boston. And here is a more recent report. That was from October 25th. But there is a more recent report from San Jose following up on the story that they're going to be charging her in California over this. This is NBC Bay Area making this report. A dog trainer accused of failing to return a dog to a Peninsula home is now facing felony larceny charges in two states. Investigative reporter Hilda Gutierrez first told us about the German Shepherd that disappeared from Palo Alto and tonight has a surprising development in this bizarre story. Our first story on this dog trainer aired back in January, but recently a man in Massachusetts contacted me saying a trainer he hired never returned his dog and he believes is the same woman he saw in our story. This is Charlie, a three-year-old French bulldog from North Reading, Massachusetts. The Hanson family says they hired a dog trainer named Lily through the app Thumbtack to board and train Charlie for two weeks. But at the end of the training, she didn't return their pet. I don't know what exactly happened. I don't know if he jumped out of the car or somebody took him, but he's gone. That's the story Hanson says he got from the dog trainer when she sent this text saying her car had broken down on the side of the road. These are expensive breeds. I don't know if it was a negligence issue. I don't know if we're dealing with a scam. After searching for Charlie, speaking to animal control in law enforcement, Bart Hansen says he found our story online. There's a bizarre missing dog case on the peninsula. That- <laughs> I go into Google and see the, the story from NBC in San Francisco and Bay Area. And I was like, oh, my God. 
That's when Hansen says he realized the dog trainer he knew as Lily was really Josephine Raglan, who was being investigated for another missing dog case in California. Our story explained how a Palo Alto woman said a dog trainer tried to replace her purebred German Shepherd with a lookalike. When that didn't work, she says the trainer texted her saying the dog was most definitely dead. Because it's like a son that disappeared and you don't know where, if he's, he's dead, I don't know where his body is. That's the owner of the German Shepherd who disappeared early this year. Or if he's alive, where is he? Maybe he's with another person. They sold the, I don't know what happened to him. Palo Alto police didn't make an arrest at the time. But in Massachusetts, Charlie's disappearance led to a multi-agency investigation. According to a North Reading police report, after speaking to Raglan, going through her phone and visiting her parents' home in Connecticut, they determined Charlie had died within a few days of being in her care and his body was dumped near Raglan's home. So she was sending me these text updates and pictures after he was dead. A necropsy revealed that Charlie was emaciated with no food in his system and likely died from a heat stroke. Investigators say they found four other dogs in crates at Raglan's home that appeared malnourished. The police told me that the main sort of driving force behind this was just pure financial gain. According to that report, North Reading police contacted Palo Alto police, who had spoken to 18 of Raglan's clients in the Bay Area, who described a similar pattern and practice of abuse and neglect. Investigators claim 28-year-old Raglan executed a scheme advertising through Thumbtack with no intent to provide training. The defendant had misled officers throughout the entirety of the investigation regarding her name, her address, as well as the circumstances regarding this incident. That, that was the DA talking. Raglan pleaded not guilty to two felonies in Massachusetts, larceny of over $1,200 by false pretense and misleading police. I can't believe this because all of her reviews and Thumbtack were all positive. It looked like a very, very legitimate thing. So it was devastating. Thumbtack sent us a statement saying in part, we are actively investigating this heartbreaking situation and have responded to all requests from the authorities in connection with the incident. Thumbtack removed Raglan's... Yeah, that's such a bullshit corporate statement. That statement just pissed me off from Thumbtack. Instead of addressing this and addressing why there were so many positive reviews, if you look at the reviews on Thumbtack, you will see there were 123 reviews on the California listing. And she had 4.8 out of 5 stars. So given that she didn't really train any of these dogs, none of those 5-star reviews were real. So out of 123 reviews, they were probably just about all fake. And they're not addressing how that's happening there. How is it on Thumbtack that it is so easy to make fake accounts and review yourself over and over and over again, which she apparently did? So they just say, well, we're, we're working with police. We're, we're answering all their questions. We, we take fraud very seriously. It's such bullshit. They just don't want to address the flaw in their platform, which is a gigantic flaw. California profile after the German Shepherd's disappearance. Just last week, nine months after Scott's disappearance, the district attorney in Santa Clara County also charged Raglan with two felonies, theft of a dog and personal property of a value greater than $950.
Josephine Raglan has not returned our messages. She was released on the Massachusetts case until her trial in order to turn in her passport, stay away from animals, and not make any social media posts about pets. In Palo Alto, police have requested a warrant for her arrest. With the investigative unit, I'm Hilda Gutierrez. Now, I don't know what they're going to do regarding compelling her to come to San Jose or Palo Alto to face these charges. I don't know if there will be any extradition attempt. I don't know if she will fight extradition. I don't know if this will automatically happen if somehow she does get some kind of jail time or even just gets convicted and is on probation. Maybe she would be required to go back there and face the charges. So I don't know how that's going to go. I'm presuming she'll probably go back there to face them. So at least they're doing this now. Now, as I was saying, she's not charged with animal abuse there. She's charged with like theft of an animal worth more than $950 and also charged with uh, some kind of fraud or larceny. So it's good she's being charged in both states and Bart is really hoping Connecticut will do it as well because then they can hit her with animal abuse charges too. And maybe that would be the one to actually send her to real prison. Hopefully there's not this concurrent sentence bullshit. If she does get sentenced for anything, hopefully she would have to do different sentences in each state for what she's done. What an awful woman, though. Just If you read that police report, which you can find in the Poker Fraud Alert thread, I put a link to it. If you read that police report, you will get angry. The thread, by the way, is called Bart Hansen Making National News as he goes after dog training scammer Josephine Ragland. So if you look at the very beginning of the second page of the thread, you'll see there's a Google Drive link, and it's safe to click on. And you can read the entire police report from Massachusetts. And then you'll see a link at the bottom of that same post where I have a link to that uh, Boston news story I just played you. And then the post that I just recently made of the NBC Bay Area report I just played you, the longer one that was about four-plus minutes. So let's hope they throw the book at her. Let's hope that she sees real time inside a prison cell, because she deserves it. And I wish they'd charge the mother with obstruction, too. Because the mother was very involved. The mother should not get off for this year. Even if you want to say she was trying to protect her daughter, it was much worse than that. I mean, she had the dogs right in her house. She knew what was happening. She had no problem with it. You don't have to let your daughter abuse dogs in your own house. And if you do, and if you cover for her when the police call about it, then you're guilty too. She's guilty of not quite as much as Josephine Ragland, but definitely a very willing accomplice. Moving on, I want to give you a Christopher Mitchell update. So Christopher Mitchell has been doing his same scam now for what's coming up on four years. I don't want to tell the whole Christopher Mitchell history because you guys mostly know it, but this guy was like a career scammer and huckster who just did not want to have any kind of real job and would do whatever it took to not have one. 
And he was also very arrogant. He saw himself as smarter and above everybody else. That he's, he's too good to work. Even though he's, he's not educated, he doesn't have any skills, but he's too good to work. Everybody else should work and not him. And if he has to scam to make that happen, then so be it. So over the years, he was doing a whole bullshit uh, fitness routine and trying to sell books about that. And he did multi-level marketing. He was doing whatever he could to try to support himself without having a real job. But none of these had a lot of success. But he stumbled upon something in late 2019, early 2020 that started him on an entirely new path that was far more lucrative than the others, and that was gambling. So he just started out because he happened to be staying in the Rio when he was there for some convention, and he gambled, and he decided he really liked gambling. So he kept gambling. And then, I guess after initially losing, he came up with various systems to win. And these systems were not positive expectation. They were not winning systems. He has no mathematical or statistical background. He has no capability or education. Or he's not even self-taught. Like the, the, he, he possesses no skills or knowledge that would enable him to be able to come up with any kind of system to beat the casino. The guy's just an idiot. But he convinced himself that he could come up with these simple concepts that somehow would be groundbreaking and would bring the casinos to their knees that no one else in the history of gambling had thought of. You know, things like uh, doubling your bet when you lose or, or betting on the trends you see on the roulette wheel. These were his winning strategies that he thought that no one else has ever come up with before and that he is a great gambler who has figured it all out. And the reason he thought this was because he had a hot streak at the beginning of 2020 and the end of 2019, where using these martingale strategies and hop from a table after 15 minutes so you don't give it back and move to another table, just stupid things which were a combination of superstition and long disproven gambling strategies that just have no mathematical basis. But it happened to be working, which it can do for the short or medium term. Usually not. Usually it's going to lose pretty quickly, but sometimes you can get lucky for a while and you can keep winning. So he ran up some money and at that point a light bulb went over his head and he said, oh, wait a minute. I've come up with something here. I'm a genius. I figured out how to beat Vegas. So he came up with the idea that much like he had tried to teach people about how to get fit without steroids, even though he did steroids all the time. He claimed he didn't do them, but he was really doing them. But, you know, he had done educational books and videos before. He said, hey, why don't I do gambling coaching, gambling training, and I can show people how to make the money I did and make even more money. And the idiot really believed it at the time. He really believed he had a winning system. But, of course... Reality smacked him pretty hard, and in February of 2020, this is before the casino shut down, you know, COVID was just beginning, he lost most of what he had. So the party was over, as it often is for addicted gamblers after a fairly short time. 
But at that point, he didn't say, oh, well, I thought I could beat the casinos, but I can't. Okay, never mind. I'm going to shut down my gambling course. Instead, he used the appearance that he was continuously destroying the casinos and had become a millionaire just by beating the casinos to scam people and sell these, quote, winning strategies for anywhere from hundreds to thousands of dollars. In fact, he was even offering personal one-on-one coaching for up to 10 k So we've covered all this before, and he's been running various forms of this same scam for the last four years. He has been moving around the strategies. Sometimes it'll be online, sometimes it'll be live, sometimes it will be Baccarat, sometimes it'll be roulette, sometimes it'll be blackjack, sometimes it'll be sports betting. And whenever he moves on to something new, then he criticizes what he was doing before. Say, oh, well, I don't want a sports bet because I like when I have control. I know I'm a winner. I know I can always win, but I hate counting on athletes to do what I expect. So I'm not going to be a professional sports better anymore. And then whatever he's doing next loses. And he goes back to sports betting and says, oh, well, I like sports betting because who wants to spend all day in the casino trying to make money when all you have to do is spend a few minutes placing bets every day and then the athletes all do the work for you? (laughs) Or he'll criticize online and say that online casinos are a scam. And then when he gets his ass kicked live because none of his strategies work, then he'll go back to online and say, oh, well, who wants to spend all day in the casino when you can just sit in your home and from anywhere play on this online casino? (laughs) So basically what he has going on right now is a combination of commission from Bet Online. So he's an affiliate for Bet Online, and he gets 35% of whatever people lose who sign up through him. So that's one income source. And then another income source is getting idiots to pay for his inner circle and coaching sessions and and meetups that he has. And some of these can be quite expensive for thousands of dollars. Now, is he really rich because of this? No, because the moron still believes he can beat the casinos and keeps chunking it back off. So he's always in this cycle ranging between flat broke and probably like low six-figure net worth, but it always goes back to flat broke because whatever he has at the moment, he starts betting higher and higher, and because his strategies are all negative expectation, he eventually loses. So it's an endless cycle here, and it's always going to be. So we've discussed all this before, and I stopped discussing him that much on this show in recent times because it's just more of the same thing. There's a thread on Poker Fraud Alert in the Scam, Scandals, and Shadiness forum, which is now over 700 pages long, and it's all about Christopher Mitchell. And it's kind of a combination of investigating him, making fun of him, comedy, exposing him. It's kind of all of this rolled into one. And there's members of Poker Fraud Alert who only post in that thread and nowhere else. We got a number of new members who only talk about Christopher Mitchell and don't post anywhere else on the site. And it's amazing how good some of these people are in this thread where, like, he'll move somewhere and they'll figure out from the background of where he is exactly where he's moved to. Or they'll even figure out his exact address from little clues based upon what was available to rent in these places. These people are really, really good at investigating. 
and they'll cooperate together and they'll they'll come up with the goods on him every time. He, he must hate it how quickly people take apart everything he does there. And I also can't forget, I know I've told you guys this before, but his original history before all the scamming was he came to Southern California and he immediately got involved in the gay porn scene. <laughs> and you can still find videos online where he's in these films. Now, you don't see him having sex with men, but you see he's in gay videos. You see him naked. You see him jerking off. And there's even one where he's discussing how he hitched a ride to California from Texas. And that in exchange for the ride, that the male truck driver took him back to the back of the cab and uh, sucked his dick. That that was the agreement. And he framed it as a positive experience. Not like the guy took advantage of him. Like he said, yeah, it was a good deal. <laughs> so it, it's pretty amazing that that was his background and there's nothing he can do about it. You know, he didn't want this found, but it was found and he can't do anything about it because he doesn't own the rights to these films. He signed away the rights to whoever was making the films and paid him at the time. So he can't even ask them to take it down. So this has been shared everywhere. And this has also been used to mock him. And of course he never admits to it. In fact, he's, he's sworn on the Bible before that he's never done gay porn and he's never done anything sexual with a man and of course this has all been disproven from uh, what he says and does in these videos so anyway there's a very long story behind the whole christopher mitchell thing he even filed a bogus restraining order against one of our members here and we had that member on that's uh, a hoosier a so i'm sure most of you are aware of this He's had three YouTube channels terminated, all related to being a scammer. Now, it's hard to get channels terminated on YouTube because you can't speak to any humans at YouTube. YouTube is managed by bots, mostly. It's very hard to get a hold of a human. So you can't reason with the bots that this is a scam channel and it needs to come down. The bots don't have the capacity to analyze this. So the bots don't say, hey, I'm a bot. I can't do this. The bot pretends like it's concerned, and then nothing ever happens. So it's, And then the report button on YouTube doesn't work very well either. So it took a very long time to get the first channel down. It finally went down because of fraud and scams. Then he put up a second channel. That was very quickly terminated. I guess YouTube detected that he put up a second channel to replace the first. But then he got smarter, and he took over uh, his wife's channel, and that one lasted for a long time. And that finally got terminated. It took a long time, but it got terminated. And then, like earlier this year, he was very frustrated and was posting on Facebook that he's just done with YouTube. Because he felt defeated that he lost three channels. And that when he loses the channels, just all the videos are gone. And everything he's built up with with search engines and all that that's all gone nobody can find it anymore nobody can find him because his youtube was the main way he'd find new suckers so when the third channel disappeared he had quit youtube he was posting he was very frustrated and he quit youtube but i guess that subsided after some months passed and he started a new channel called goat life baby and this is so obnoxious he calls himself the goat the greatest of all time g-o-a-t so his new channel, Goat Life Baby, is what he's running at the moment. And 
YouTube has not removed it yet, despite the efforts of some of us. We're, we're still trying, but uh, we haven't got it removed yet. So he's restarted things all up there. It doesn't quite have the reach it once did, so that's good. But his new channel isn't quite catching on enough. But he, he buys followers and views, so sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what interaction it's really getting. But he's just doing more of the same thing on his fourth channel here. A member of this forum decided that he was going to try to take some action sort of related to the new channel, and that's why I'm doing this segment. So Christopher Mitchell has been going around to different casinos and filming himself in these casinos and trying to show off how he's winning, blah, blah, blah. And of course, you don't see any proof he's really winning, but he likes to present that he's spending his days gambling at the casinos and basically just printing money at will. So one of the members here who's on Twitter as Bobby Z. He decided that he's going to try a tactic to maybe get Christopher Mitchell banned from these casinos. So what he started doing was every time Christopher Mitchell would release a video showing himself in a certain casino, that Bobby Z would then tweet to that casino and ask them why they were allowing a scammer to use their casino as a prop for his scams and why they don't just remove him. So... I felt this was a pretty effective thing to do, or at least it had the potential to be effective, and at least it was worth a try. Because casinos are in kind of a funny spot here. Because where has all the money gone that Christopher Mitchell has scammed? Which, by the way, is a lot by now, over the last four years. I mean, he's been at this for a long time, and he's scammed a lot of people for thousands each. Well, hundreds, two thousands each. But, I mean, a lot of victims here. There's a lot of victims over a four-year period. So how much do I estimate that he has scammed in this whole gambling coaching scheme he's been doing for four years? I think it's in excess of... One million dollars. Yeah, I do. I think he's made over a million. I think his claim of being a millionaire, which he's not, of course, I think that would be a true claim if he did not have a gambling problem. If he just pocketed the money and did not gamble, then I believe he would be a millionaire. But he chunks it all off. So where has that money gone? Well, most of it has gone to the casinos. So the casinos love having someone like him, someone who is dumb enough to believe that they have a system to beat the casino and will just keep throwing every dollar they have at attempting to do so. So this is why he has all these comps that he shows off, because he just chunks off money at a high rate at these casinos whenever he gets his hands on a few bucks sometimes more than a few bucks. So the casinos, from a business standpoint, do not want to lose his business unless he's more trouble than he's worth. And that's where we can make an impact. So if the casinos are shamed for allowing him to operate there, then they may just decide, hey, the bad PR from this isn't worth it. We're getting rid of this guy. Now, every casino is different. They all have different standards. They all have a different level of responsiveness. So you can't count on that you just message a casino and they'll take care of it. But it's worth a shot. And the more reputable operations are more likely to get rid of him than the sleazy places. The sleazy places just think about, hey, can we make money from this? Okay, good. We don't give a shit about our reputation. But the more classy places, they will tend to care. 
So one of the places that Bobby Z messaged was Circa. Now, Circa is a new casino downtown. It's the nicest casino downtown. It's a very nice property. It is new. And there's a lot of buzz about it. And people feel pretty positively about Circa so far. I mean, yeah, it's downtown. And yeah, you have to like downtown if you want to go there. But if you do, that that is the best place there. They also run these increasingly popular sports contests, one of which has no rake, the Circus Survivor Contest, which we actually have an active entry in at this moment. We are through nine weeks in this 20-week contest. It's a $9.6 million contest, and we're 45% through. And hopefully we'll get 100% through. But that actually is run with no rake. It's a $9.6 million contest with no rake. And it's a very popular contest, as is their Circa Millions football handicapping contest. That's also very popular. And in general, people like their sports book, and they like the director of their sports book, whose name is Jeffrey Benson. So the reason I'm telling you all this about Circa is that Christopher Mitchell had been using Circa as a prop as one of the casinos that he was going to. Because he just recently moved back to Vegas. In fact, he moved uh, very close to where he lived previously. We believe he's in the same complex. He may even be in the exact same unit as he was before. For a while, he left Vegas and claimed he didn't need Vegas anymore, but he's back. Anyway, I thought, you know, Circa's been getting... A lot of good press recently. They, they have a lot of social media presence. There's been a lot of good PR about their Circus Survivor contest. And people just generally like them on gambling Twitter. So if we bring it to their attention that a scammer is operating from their property, might they be concerned? So after Bobby Z brought it to their attention, which is a very good idea, I responded back and basically just stated that I 100% agree that Christopher Mitchell is a career scammer, that he shouldn't be allowed there, and that I'm very surprised that Circa is tolerating this. And I said, you know, a classy operation like yours, I'm surprised that you would want someone like this scamming from your property. So it was a shot in the dark. I wasn't sure if they were going to respond at all. But Jeffrey Benson, remember the director of the sports book, responded back And he said that the problem has been addressed. Yep. Now, he didn't say specifically what was done. He didn't say Christopher Mitchell's been banned, but he said that the issue has been addressed with upper management. So what do you think that means? I think it means he's banned. At the very, very, very minimum, he's been told never to film there again, but I think he's just banned. I think Jeffrey Benson Googled him and found all the info which pointed to the obvious, that Christopher Mitchell was a career scammer and that he was using Circa in one of the videos as a place he was supposedly gambling and just winning all kinds of money, trying to entice people to fall for his scam. And he probably said to the people above him, hey, this guy seems like bad news. You just get rid of him. Like, that's what I think happened. So I don't think you'll be seeing Christopher Mitchell in Circa anytime soon. And since then, we've been doing this with other properties. 
And, you know, we're just telling the truth. And every time I respond to one of these tweets from Bobby Z, I always put at the end, and I'm sincere when I make this offer, that they're welcome to direct message me and I will present them the proof that Christopher Mitchell's a scammer. So it's not just my word against his. I can present them the proof as to what he's doing. It's a 702 number calling in. I wonder if it's Christopher Mitchell. Is that you? Is this still the fraud show? Might be. Listen, it was a little bit longer than I anticipated, but uh, I'm back. I did some long topics. I'm I'm just finishing off with Christopher Mitchell here that I got him uh, what I think was banned from Circa. Well, you told me this in person. Yeah. So I know the story. You're finishing that topic? I'm just finishing it, yeah. So, yeah, props to Jeffrey Benson of Circa for taking action here. I, I give them a big thumbs up. I responded that I'm very impressed with the way they're handling things so far, and I, I'm sincere about that. And I think it's great when you have casino management that's willing to listen to the customers on social media. And when customers bring it to them, hey, there's a career scammer operating from over here and posting it on YouTube, that instead of just dismissing it or saying, hey, this guy's losing money here, so we don't care, they look and go, yeah, this guy sucks. He's gone. Like that's, They didn't directly say he's gone, but it was, it was implied. And I don't think he's welcome there anymore so little victory and hopefully the big victory is coming soon hopefully we will have his channel down his fourth channel down sooner than later just wanted to give you guys that update so anyway welcome back brandon if you can uh, talk as loud as you can scream if necessary so people can hear you so i don't have to correct this in post-production which is a pain in the ass anyway let's move on to uh the next topic, and I think you'll be interested in this one, too. I want to talk about the Formula One race and the fact that, number one, it's approaching very fast in uh, 10 days. Actually, now nine days will take place on the 16th of November. And this may be before you we have... Can your what happened, your thing? I'm about to. There, there may okay. be no more shows... Of poker fraud alert prior to when it goes off so the next episode may be talking about what it was like and how it worked out in vegas but before we begin i do want to mention something that i actually have for sale i have two formula one tickets to a very nice section because there's different sections you can sit and some you have a better view some is just the grandstand some you uh, have nicer seats or access to other amenities there so it's a different experience you know there's kind of the luxury experience and there's kind of the low-end experience even though all of it's expensive i actually have two tickets in one of the better sections but i cannot make it to the formula one so i have these for sale and if any listeners would like to buy it, uh, please get a hold of me. If you're going to be in Vegas and you'd like to sit in a nice place, these are not assigned seats. You just have access to the whole section, and I guess you sit uh, wherever you can find a seat in there. But uh, it's one of the good sections. And if you want to message me about it, I'll tell you more about it. And if you're interested... I will sell it to you. Now, you're not going to get this dirt cheap. Don't uh, say, hey, I'll buy each one for $200. It's not going to be like that. You know, if you go look at the prices online if you want to buy these on the secondary market, and you'll see that you won't get anything for under four figures, and that's even in the grandstands, which are the, the worst place to sit. 
So it is expensive, and if you don't want to spend that type of money on it, I totally understand. But if you're interested in buying this, uh, please let me know. And Formula we... One races in general are expensive. Yes. I mean, they're on par with like the Super Bowl, so it's not like... You know, no matter where you went, that's just what they cost. Or yeah, but, but as I was saying, this this is a much better section to be in than what's normally for sale. So anything you see that says grandstands, this is way better than that. So, you know, it, we can talk about what it would be sold for. Uh, if you're interested, please message me. Please only do so if you really want to. Not Don't just do it to waste my time. And, uh, you know, maybe we can make a sale, of course, uh, you know, you can trust me. I'm not going to say anything counterfeit or anything like that. You know, you know, I'll be very reputable in the transaction. So if you are interested, please text me 775-372-8355. 775-372-8355. You can text me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I may not respond immediately if I'm not available or if I'm sleeping, but I will get back to you. So if you are interested in buying these, please let me know. And you can even let me know if you will be interested to buy them like last minute but the only thing i'm saying is that i'm going to sell them to someone but before i leave vegas because i'm going to be in vegas but then i have to leave so i'm going to sell them to somebody so i may have already sold them so i'm not going to hold them for you if you haven't actually made a decision to buy them from me so, yeah, it's only fair. You can't say, well, I might buy it on the last day and then be disappointed when they're not available anymore. So if you want to lock them in to where I'll guarantee to sell them to you, then message me. We can do that. And if if you have some interest or maybe at the last minute that if I haven't sold them yet, you'd like to buy them, you can let me know that as well. And I can contact you at the time, maybe like the day before, and uh, we can talk about it at that point but again remember they might be gone by then so i'm i'm not going to hold it for anybody who says they might or might not be interested and they'll let me know but if you have any level of interest that's serious interest i mean like you really think you might go and and spend uh good money on this let me know uh as i said i, I encourage you to google the prices on these to get an idea of what these tickets go for so you don't come in thinking you're going to get them for a few hundred bucks and then be shocked when I tell you a price. So, <laughs> um, you know, we, we can talk about the price, but it's not going to be cheap. And that's because none of them are cheap. So I'm not going to screw myself and sell them you know, for tremendously below market value. But, but then again, I'm not looking to squeeze out every single dime here. I, I just want to sell them and uh, be done with it. So what some, you're saying is you're going to sell them at a fair price. Yes. And okay. You can definitely trust me. Um, so please let me know if you're interested in buying these. The only thing I do have to say here is I can't send them to you right now because I do not have them in hand. So when I get them, I will, of course, give them to you. But if, if you're going to like message me now and say, hey, yeah, I'm very interested. I'll pay what you're asking. Uh, ship them to me tomorrow. I can't do that because I don't physically have them. But if I agree with you that you're going to get them, then I'm not going to screw you. I'm not going to flake on you or anything. So, you know, we'll discuss the whole thing and how that all goes if you're interested. And that, that's not the main purpose of this segment. I just wanted to mention that because I know a lot of you have been listening a long time. And I know that if you're considering buying one of these, 
on the secondary market because if you do it through the casinos it's ridiculously expensive like way more than you're going to pay with me and you're going to get a, a, a probably a worse section you're going to be sitting so it is a good idea value-wise to buy it from a third party but the problem is you know you don't know who's selling it to you if they're reliable if they're going to send you sell you counterfeit stuff i mean it can be kind of scary so at least with me you know that's not going to happen with you I, i'm guaranteeing you the transaction here that you're not going to get you're screwed. buying it from a guy that you're buying it from a guy that's synonymous with a fraud site yeah fraud with, with the anti-fraud yeah. site not not a site committing fraud so yeah so uh just if that's something that you want to see uh don't go buy one of these failed packages from a hotel and all that uh you you should mm-hmm. uh, definitely try to contact me about it and believe me you'll be very happy with the section that this will be in it'd be probably far better than what you would get from any of these uh, expensive hotel packages so just throwing that out there the main purpose of this segment is to discuss the f1 race and how this whole thing has kind of been a fail in a lot of ways and i i think when the whole thing's over that's going to be the conclusion so first of all as brandon can you're saying it's going to leave it's going to leave a legacy of fail. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Brandon can already verify that the traffic has become an absolute nightmare in Las Vegas, especially near the Strip, over the last several months as the, as they've been preparing for it because they had to do a lot of work on the roads there to make them uh, appropriate for these race cars to speed around at these very high rates. So. They've been doing so much work in and around the Strip, and it has been a killer for traffic. Even I've run into it a few times. And this has been going on for months. This isn't like for the last two weeks. I mean, this has been going on for months on and off in different areas. And so the the city is already kind of frustrated. The city, meaning not the city government. I'm talking about the people who live in Las Vegas are already very frustrated with this whole thing. But maybe you say, okay, we'll put that aside. Maybe it'll be a great event, and it'll be very successful. It's just inconvenience to the locals. Well, no, because what was anticipated was that this was going to draw people in that were going to pay huge money for hotels. Because the tickets are very expensive, so they're figuring if they're attracting this a lot of people, who are very high-end clientele that have a lot of money to spend on watching this race. If everybody's going to spend four figures and above for these tickets each, that it makes sense that they will spend that much for their hotel room per night. Because there will be such high demand. Everyone's going to want to be here. It'll be more expensive than New Year's. So this was seen as something the hotels could hugely profit from. And if you try to get a hotel room for the F1 dates, which were on and around uh, November 16th through 18th, you would see rates of like $1,500 a night for standard rooms. And I'm not talking about at the best properties either. I'm saying they everywhere. You just could not get rooms on the Strip for anything resembling a reasonable price, even by special event standards, even by New Year's standards. And that's what was expected, and that's what was promised to the hotels, that they're going to really see a lot of benefit from this. And the hotels were also promised that they could reap a lot of money by selling these very expensive packages, where they will sell 
room plus tickets at a big markup. Well, this has not materialized. There is far less demand for this than expected. And I thought that. I thought that was going to be the case. Is I just could not see the number of people they were expecting all coming into town and paying these outrageous rates for the rooms, plus the very expensive tickets. Now, by the way, that's good news for you if you do want to come and buy these tickets for, for, from me. And I'm, I'm not trying to turn this into an advertisement. But if your concern is oh, I, I can't afford the hotel rooms, it's, it's crazy money, forget it. And, you know, I'd pay for the tickets, but the hotel rooms, I'm not going to pay that. It's, it's not like that anymore. It's gone way, way down. And also, hardly anyone was getting comp offers at first. Some of the whales were getting it, but at first they were not giving comp offers for that period of time, figuring that they're going to sell out for super high rates, so why would they give away the rooms? Not the case anymore. More and more people are finding they have comps for those dates, which means if you get casino comps in Vegas, go check the rates online. You know, log in and check your rates online. You may actually have comped rooms or close to comp rooms that you can get during that time. So this is very, very different than what was expected and what was kind of sold to the casinos as far as going along with this. So this has been highly disappointing from the financial standpoint, and it makes sense. I just didn't see where they were going to get this many people to spend that type of money to watch cars race around the Strip. It just never made any sense to me. It just didn't seem like something that was going to bring in that many big spenders in huge numbers. Like, What was your impression when you first heard about this? Um, You know what? I don't want to dissuade anyone because of your sales pitch. <laughs> I have absolutely no interest in this sport. I never have. I don't get it. Uh, I thought it was going to just create problems for the locals from the start, which it has. Make life more inconvenient. Um, I was never excited. Uh, I can't wait till it's over. Um, if they just left and never came back, I'd be thrilled. But <laughs> other than that, I'm on board with it. Listen to this. I'm not logged into Caesars right now. Caesars.com. Okay, so I'm seeing the rates mm-hmm. that are offered to the general public. And keep in mind, these rates before were sky high. I'm talking like over 1000 So the race begins on the 16th. It ends on the 18th. So here's the rates. So let's say you want to come in on the 15th and be there for the 16th. Let me give you the rates, for example, for Horseshoe. It is $25. I'm not including resort fee, but $25 for the 15th, $39 for the 16th, $159 for the 17th, which, by the way, is a weekend also, and $219 for the 18th. This is actually cheaper than coming in the previous week. So this upcoming weekend is more expensive than that at the Horseshoe. Now, you may say, well, that's the Horseshoe. I don't want to stay there. Well... While Caesar's Palace is expensive, it's a seven sixty nine for the weekend each night and two forty nine on the sixteenth. You can and that's al- also probably at their lowest their lowest end tower too. Yeah. That's probably like in a Julius room or something, right? Yeah. But um yeah. as you see, you can stay in, in places like the horseshoe for much cheaper and then you know, Harris is is uh, 88 for the 15th, 69th for the 16th, 189. It's not the hot ticket that they thought 
not the hot ticket that they anticipated being a year ago. It just isn't. No, it's so not. got closer and closer to the date. These casinos noticed that the bookings weren't filling up, so they had to adjust accordingly to try to salvage, and they don't want to have like a 20 30% you know, occupancy rate during this weekend and be embarrassed. Yeah, they're lowering their rates accordingly. Yeah, but, and, and as I said, it's it's actually cheaper across the board at Caesars Properties at every single property for the weekend of the race but, than the weekend before. But the one thing I will say, which I guess if it's true, and I have no reason to think it isn't, that will excite the con- the casino executives. Is there's an article in the Review Journal today that said that the enrollment of new casino credit uh, in anticipation of that weekend is at a historic all-time high. More people have registered for credit, you know, lines of credit, you know, to gamble with uh, for that weekend than at any other point in the history of Vegas. And in terms of new accounts, that's what it said. So, you know, if that's the case, maybe they salvage it that way. Maybe it doesn't turn out... I mean, you know, two things can happen and still be true. It could be a disaster in terms of the overall interest, you know, and, and just how many people show up and the rooms being full, but it could also be uh, profitable to what they expect for the casinos. Um, but there are also all these other weird things that are annoying people. They're charging $15, a $15 surcharge for taxi cabs, for instance, and Uber is going to be charging more too. Uh, Lyft, they're all charging more. They all got permission from Clark County to do that. But do you know why they requested? Why, I'm sorry. Do you know why they're claiming the need and the justification, which was already, which has already been approved? Do you know the logic behind it? Um, no. What was the reason? Because the various lobbying boards that work on behalf or work for taxis and Ubers and Uber Eats have stated because the majority of people that are coming are going to be from Europe that they are not going to tip because they don't know better. And because of that, they don't want their service employees to be stiffed. And this is a big concern with other front end of the house employees that you can't really compensate. Otherwise, you know, a lot of the casinos could compensate them, but they're not, you know, such as valets and room service and, you know, whatever, all the other, you know, employees that really make a majority of their money on tips. Uh, there's a concern because there's, they're claiming over 75% of the people that are going to be arriving are going to be from Europe. And in Europe, there's there's no tipping. And they're either not going to tip or they're not going to know they're supposed to or that, you know, whatever, that it's that's a recognized their standard, I don't know, you know, whatever you want to call it. And that's why they're adjusting accordingly with the fees. At least that was their argument in getting it approved. Whether that's really true and they feel that way or, you know, if it's a cash grab and they're using that to justify, who knows? But that was the argument. I think it is a cash grab. And and you know what? I don't feel bad for them, even the ones that uh, are not going to be compensated by this increase. Because Oh, my God. They have to work two days, and they're not going to make a killing. They're just going to make a ton instead. Like, really? Yeah. And that's my problem. Most of these positions are overpaid anyway. Even though they're making the money from tips and their base salary is low, most of them are overpaid compared to the job they're doing. And there is such a thing as being overpaid for the job you're doing. Now, that's great for the person doing it. I'm, I'm happy for them that they're making good money for a job that uh, 
normally shouldn't kind of command that type of money coming in. But uh, the truth is, when you're overpaid, you're overpaid, and you can't bitch about it when two days of the year that uh, you're going to get less because you, you happen to have a lot of people coming in not tipping as much. So I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for those well, that... you know what? Probably, though, for Uber drivers, for sure, because they can dictate their own schedule. They're never for, forced to drive, and to a lesser degree, taxis as well. It's probably the incentive also that they needed to make sure that they're well covered if people aren't calling off or not showing up. Because I'll tell you something, A, if I was an Uber driver, I would not work that weekend. I'm not an Uber driver. I've never worked for Uber. I've never had any kind of job like that. But if I was, I would not show up. And B, you have to think about taxi, Uber, Lyft, whatever, right? any kind of ride share. It's probably going to take you at points, sometimes an hour an hour and a half just to drop off a fare and pick one up. So you know what I mean? Because of the traffic and the gridlock that this is going to cause. You got to remember the whole strip's going to be closed for four days. So anywhere you go, picking people up, dropping them off at hotels, everything is going to be down back roads, avoiding the strip where every other car is going to be on as well. You know, imagine basically taking all the traffic. Okay that's on the strip on any given, you know, big weekend. And then now just putting it on all the back roads and side streets behind the various casinos, it's absolute gridlock. Like you're gridlock. Yeah, it'll be horrible. That's, yeah, that's one of the things I, I think might happen. I think that people are maybe underestimating how terrible the traffic really gets. The only thing you can compare it to is when the strip is closed for about six hours during uh, December 31st uh, on uh, New Year's Eve. Usually usually from 6, 6 p.m., 5 p.m. to about 4 in the morning. Okay, so Closer about to like 11, 11 hours. Okay. So, yeah, close, close. Yeah, close, close. Yeah. But I'll so tell you where it's a little bit different. It's different in that huh? the one play it's, way it's different is that most people who come for that night for New Year's, they go to their hotel. They're usually already there because I think a lot of places don't even want you checking in on the 31st. A lot of them make you check in on the 30th. So people are already there. They do. And they don't really feel the need to go anywhere for the most part. You know, they, they can walk places, but they, there's there's not a lot of driving that night anyway. People are kind of where they need to be at that point. And this is also four straight days, though. We don't have a precedent for this. Yes, that's the other thing, too. So, you know, of that long, of that long. Yeah, and I, th- I think with this, not only is it going to be for these days, but... Uh, I think that there's going to be people feeling more of a need to move around than something on New Year's where people are basically just, you know, going to dinner, yeah. going to walk the strip and you know, wait for the fireworks and then you know, walk back to the hotel and go to sleep. So this could be a problem. I, I think I read that it's not going to be all day that these closures are going to take place. I, I read that it was uh, like 5 p.m. to 2 a.m. every day. So okay. they're... they're probably will be parts earlier in the day where you can drive around on the strip. We're talking about the main strip. I don't think the main strip's going to open at all during the race. Are you sure? Because they wouldn't want the road damaged or impeded in any way with them having the, I don't know. I'm going to look that up now. I thought it was, maybe certain parts will be open, like they'll reopen Flamingo, but I don't know about the actual strip itself. But I'll tell you, I have, for months now, since about June, I've had, and I still have today, I actually checked earlier, free room offers at every single Caesar property. And even with that said, 
you probably you would have to probably pay me several thousand dollars, like in some kind of you know free play or I don't know whatever. Someone giving it to me to get me to go down there. I have no interest, even with free rooms, by free food. I, I have no interest in being a part of it. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to just you know, but I mean it's just not my thing. You know what I mean? It's just like it's not. I you know I've lived here long enough. I don't like the crowds. I don't, I stay away from you know I'm a local. I stay away from the strip when there's big things like big events like that. And I'm not a racing fan. I just I don't really get it. You know, if I went down there, like, it'd be cool, like, for 30 minutes, 20 minutes to watch them go in circles. And then after that, I, I, it, you know, it, the appeal the appeal to me would be gone. Like, you oh. know what I mean? I just wouldn't. Well, now, now nobody's going to buy know. my ticket, so thank you. Oh, no. No, but if anyone's going to buy your tickets, it's going to be because they're a racing enthusiast. No, I know, I know. I, I just yeah. figured, you know, we, we have a big enough audience here, so people, uh, you know, if you're interested in it, uh, definitely uh, consider well, getting it from me. Because if you're going to buy it anyhow, they should get it from you. They're not yeah. going to get scammed. Yeah, they're not going to get scammed, and you'll get a better deal than what the, what the hotels sell are selling. It, you're going to sell it for a better price. Yes. You're going to sell it for a better price than they get anyhow, so that makes no sense. Yeah. Of course. So, I don't know. It, yeah. And the thing is, you know, I've asked this, I've asked employees, I've asked people in front desks and all departments, and no one has given me a straight answer. They signed a contract with Formula One for 10 years. This is only race one of 10. And the question I've asked multiple times is, will this, what we've seen as recently as as even during the World Series, people are complaining about the road closures and the traffic, and it's gotten no better. It's only gotten worse since then. Is this something that we'll just have to become accustomed to and live with or live around, you know, being a local? Or is this like a one-time thing where they're doing these improvements and, you know, maybe in three or four years they'll need to do it again and no one has an answer? Is this going to be a year-round way of living with road closures and constant repaving and paving again and repaving? And, or is there, or are they basically getting this infrastructure for the most part set up now? Uh you know, so it, it's sustainable for most of the 10 years or at least a great portion is, and no one has an answer. I'm going to ask you, and I think I have asked you, and you didn't have an answer, but I'll ask you again. Have you seen anything? Have you read anything? Do you know if this, what we've gone through is going to be a continual thing, or once this race ends, do we go back to normal? What happens? What do you know? Yeah, I don't know. I had wondered the same thing. It just seems crazy that they would do this for 10 years, and if there's this declining interest already before it even goes on year one what's it going to be like in future years so i'm I'm wondering about all that and if this is going to be something that residents have to live with for all these years and if there's going to be some kind of revolt from residents where they demand that something changes so we'll have to see i don't have an answer for that either i was very surprised when i heard it was going to be 10 years when i first heard about this a while back i thought it was like a one-time novelty and there's been some other complaints, too. They removed some trees in front of uh, the Bellagio fountains that have uh, gotten people very upset. These were trees that have been there for a long time, and they just pulled them up. And people, number one, were just kind of disturbed that they're just destroying trees that have been there a while for the purpose of a race. And number two, people are saying, well, we like these trees. We like having the shade in the summer. We, you know, this is just gone now. What are you going to do with them? And they tried to put out a claim that they're replanting the trees elsewhere, which I think is bullshit. I think they probably just said it so people will feel good. But yeah, it, they, they pulled out trees, which caused controversy 
And people have also complained that these stands that are sitting there right now, you know, I, I've seen them as I've driven the strip. Uh, there's their stands presently right now, and that it's kind of an eyesore, it's blocking people's views. So people aren't thrilled about these weird stands that are sitting now on Las Vegas Boulevard. And I know that's temporary, that'll come down when this race is over, but people already don't like that. And of course, the traffic is the biggest concern. So we'll see. We'll see what the reaction is, and we'll see when this whole thing's over, when they take a look and decide whether this was a success or failure, and they analyze everything, we'll see what the report is. I mean, maybe what you're saying about the casino markers might save them. Maybe if they take in a very nice casino hall because a lot of high rollers are coming in, and there's going to be a lot of people playing and losing at high limits, that might overcome the disappointing hotel numbers that uh, you know they were hoping to really rake it in on those weekends, and it looks like they're not. As I said, the lower end Caesars properties are going for basically a low to normal weekend. Like the prices are actually lower than a lot of weekends I've seen. And yeah, Caesars is higher and Paris is higher and the Cromwell's higher, but the other properties are not. So yeah, you could say it makes sense in one way that people want to stay in the nicer Caesars properties and stay away from the lower end ones. Like, why would you come and spend all this money on the race and then stay at the Horseshoe or at Harris? But on the other hand, it's showing that they're just not selling well. It's showing that the only ones that really have a lot of demand are the upper end properties. And even there, they're not getting the type of money they were expecting, not even close. So that's a big problem. And I have to imagine these packages are not selling well that they are including with the race tickets. So we'll see. We will see. Anyway, if you are interested, please text me 775-372-8355. I don't typically sell anything on this show or try to benefit financially anyway, but uh, I'm going to sell them to somebody, and I'd actually prefer to sell it to a radio listener than a stranger anyway. Well, I have bad news for you if you're looking for the remainder of this show. I have decided that we're going to be ending it right here for part one. Because this is a very long show. It was over eight hours, and editing it is a pretty big chore. So rather than having to do this all in one sitting, I'm going to stop the whole thing right here. And the remainder of the topics that you heard in the introduction will be heard in part two which has already been recorded, just not edited yet. So the choices would be to wait until the whole thing comes out for a few more days, or for me to post this portion now, and then the other portion, which is almost four hours later on. So we're going to do a split show this time. Some of you like it, some of you don't, but that's the way we are going to do it. I do want to thank Brandon Drexel Gerson for coming on the show for a good deal of time this week. You'll hear more of him in part two. In fact, most of the part two topics have Brandon on them. In fact, more than most, all of them. So you're going to hear Brandon the entire time in part two, whereas in this one he was at the beginning, then he went away for a while, then he came back. But part two is going to have all Brandon. And the topics we will cover will be the 
Sean Chacon thing, the Mojave Desert in Las Vegas history about Don Laughlin, bed bugs in strip hotels, the culinary union and their strike. That's probably not going to happen. Something about video poker and also a little quiz about me and my life. So that's what you can look forward to in part two when that hits the archives. But for right now, you'll have to just make do with what we have here, which was still almost four and a half hours. That should be fine. Anyway, next show should be sometime in mid to late November. So I will talk to you guys then and be on the lookout for part two. It'll be there in a few days. Shalom. Shalom.